Hello, and welcome to the Two Guys, Four Balls podcast. Hello, and welcome to another Two Guys, Four Balls podcast. This is Patrick. With me, as always, is Julius. And March Madness never disappoints, and this tournament... Uh, is definitely not disappointing. We have three teams in the Final Four that have never won a championship and another one that has won a couple championships and um, their last one was 2014. So the champion that's going to be crowned this year, uh, almost the closest one was 10 years ago almost. So, uh, you know, the highest, I mean, I guess the lowest seed remaining is a four seed. We got uh, UConn at the four, Miami with a five, San Diego State's a five, and then FAU as the nine. Um, I have zero Final Four teams in my bracket. Um, <laughs> looking at the bracket, I'm pretty sure I have zero Final Four teams from when Julius and I uh, redid these. And actually looking at it, I know for a fact I do have zero Final Four teams So when we redid it. So we're going to give this hey, one hey. more go. We're going to give this one more go. <laughs> No, <laughs> I think San Diego State beats FAU, which means FAU, you just punched your ticket to the championship game. <laughs> right. Um, and just the way UConn's been playing, I talked about this last podcast, Julius. I think UConn's going to beat Miami. Um, that's not taking anything away from Miami because Miami's been playing ridiculous as well. Um, the way Miami's been winning games, though, and it's like every single game they've played in the tournament is let's fall behind a lot where people think we can't win. And then we're going to make a miraculous comeback to win. <laughs> Besides against Indiana, which they just completely blew blew the doors off Indiana. That's uh, yep. like, like what happened with Texas. It's like, you know, when you're playing video games, you're sitting back in the chair. And then it's like Miami was like, you know what? It's time to sit up and get serious. And then they came back and won that game. So um, I got UConn <laughs> and San Diego State making the championship game. Uh, and just the way UConn's been playing, I hate to say this, I, I think they're going to win the championship. Uh, unless something drastic happens in the next few days and they just lose the momentum. But um, UConn's just been playing lights-out basketball uh, like the last month and a half, two months of the college basketball season. Um, but getting into the games, uh, we haven't we, we gave you our Sweet 16 and all in predictions, so let's start uh, with the Sweet 16. So um, probably one of the biggest upsets, even though Julius and I both said San Diego State plays hard and they play great defense and they can score. Well, San Diego State being Alabama, um, Alabama was the overall number one seed. Uh, so it's great to see you no know, one seeds in the Final Four. Uh, it's it's it just makes it college basketball that much more interesting. Um, and on the other side, Miami beat Houston, and Houston was really they were in the game for a little bit, but never really you know Miami never really they just Houston was kind of trying to stick around, and then Miami just pulled away. Um, yeah, Creighton beat Princeton, which we thought would happen. Um, and Princeton played a lot tougher than I thought they would. Uh, and that was that was actually a really fun game to watch. Um, you had Texas beat Xavier, which really wasn't a challenge for Texas at all in that game. Um, and then moving on down, you had Tennessee FAU. Again, Tennessee should have won this game, in my opinion, just watching the game. Uh, their offense, though, which we talked about all tournament, we said eventually their offense, or lack thereof, is going to catch up to them. And in this game, it finally did. 
Um, Kansas State, yep. Kansas State um, beat Michigan State in overtime. That game for me was the game of the Sweet 16. Uh, that game was everything no we uh, hyped it up to be. Um, and and I had Kansas State making the Final Four, but FAU had other plans in the Elite Eight. Um, <laughs> and FAU just keeps winning close games, man. They 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 closed out Memphis uh, with Memphis not having good ball security. <laughs> Uh, to end a game, which has been a common theme uh, this tournament and in the NBA. People just don't know what to do in late-game situations anymore with a lead. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Kansas State didn't have the lead, but you know they made some plays to, to have a chance to shoot a three to tie to go to overtime and didn't even get a shot off to end that game in the Elite Eight, which was a terrible way to end that game. But shouts out to AFU for FAU for their defense and these crunch time moments and coming through and and – um, you know, holding on to the ball so they can shoot free throws. I love to see that because that's not hard. Um, you know, uh, moving on to other Sweet 16 games, you had UConn completely annihilate Arkansas. That game was a no contest. Uh, and then you had UCLA for the second year in a row losing to Gonzaga in a heartbreaker, heartbreaking three to end that game. Um then you had UConn completely dominate Gonzaga in their Elite Eight game. UConn has dominated everyone they've played in this tournament. Uh, if we're being honest, there has been there none of their games have really felt like they were in a threat of losing, unless you're just considering the first half, because there have been a couple first halves that has been close. But but come out in the second half, they look like the Warriors in the third quarter. So I don't I don't know what's <laughs> happening uh, with UConn. I mean they're just they're just balling. So. Um, but yeah, so those were the Sweet 16 games. Um, like I said, Elite Eight, San Diego State and Creighton. Uh, what a great Elite Eight game as well. Um, very defensive. There wasn't a lot of scoring in that game, but um, it had a lot of you know intense moments at the end. Uh, again, though, San Diego State, late game situation, Julius. Um, throwing the ball in, and they do a look like an alley-oop pass, but towards their own basket, miss their own guy. Creighton gets it, and he's just like, oh, a layup, cool. And now the game's <laughs> tied with 34 seconds left. Um, and I really didn't like Creighton fouling with eight seconds left. I know they had a foul to give, but this isn't the NBA where where like the shot clock resets to like 14 seconds and blah, blah, blah. Like, it turned the shot clock off. They they had San Diego State with only like four seconds left on the shot clock, I believe, and he fouled them. I just don't understand. You, they, the San Diego State didn't look like they were having a good offensive possession. They were out at the three point line. The guy was kind of driving. I'm not fouling in that situation. If they make the shot, at least we have six seconds to go do something. You know, instead of mm-hmm. now you're fouling and now you're you. I felt like that play call by the coach was to play for overtime. Why would you give San Diego State the last possession of the game, regardless of the outcome? Like, if they miss, you go to overtime, and what happened was a foul. Um, there's no way the refs couldn't call that. It was a it was a blatant foul. I don't think anyone's arguing the foul. I just hate the way that it ended. Um, I, I just don't like to see the game ended on free throws with zero seconds left. I know they put time back on the clock, but essentially the game was over. Um I, and and so, but I just don't like I don't like the play before the final play. I don't I the guy fouled, but I don't like the the take foul that takes the shot clock away. And now you've given San Diego State a chance to win the game without going into overtime. I just I did not like that play call at all. Um, and I just think that's poor coaching down the stretch. You know, again, I know you had a foul to give, but in that situation, I feel like that was the wrong call. If you're going to take that foul. Take it where the shot clock comes into play. Still, don't 
why would you not want to give yourself a chance, even if they make a layup or a three-pointer, to have five or six seconds to, to run your own play? I just don't I don't get it. That that kind of baffled me in that game. Um, you know, we talked about Miami, Texas. Texas got a, a lead early, and then Miami, again, just like they've done all tournament, but besides the Indiana game, they just kind of were like, All right, time to turn it on and win this game. Um and and so I just gotta give a tip of my hats to Larinaga. He he took George Mason to their first final four. Now he's taking Miami to their first final four. Um, and so I just think that, that that's really impressive. Um, and I know they're not in the tournament anymore, but, um, I just want to give a shout out to Keontae Johnson, uh, with Kansas state. If you, those of y'all who don't know his story, he, he collapsed while playing at Florida, uh, was in a medical coma. Um, didn't know if he was going to play basketball again. NCAA's policy, I believe offered him $5 million to, to not play again. And at that age, uh, to to five million dollars, I would have taken it. I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna sit here and say I'm playing basketball. I'm, I'm taking the five million dollars. Same. Uh, um, but shout out to him for coming back. And then Florida, when he said he wanted to come back, said no, you're a liability. We're not gonna play you. So that's why he had to transfer to Kansas State. And a first year coach, a program that's really never made it this far in the tournament, and 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 he was one mm-hmm. of the catalysts that helped this team get to the Elite Eight. So um, just want to give a shout out to Keontae Johnson. Um, and, and like I said, I, the Sweet 16 games, most of them, again, we I just discussed them, were, were good for me. Uh, most of the Elite Eight games were, were exciting and came down to the wire. Again, besides UConn, who's just blowing everybody out. Um, but what was your favorite part of the, this last week, Julius, and watching the Sweet 16 and Elite Eight? Uh, so, yeah, you, you touched on it already. And, you know, like you said, none, none of the predictions have been right about as far as, you know, who's going to win these games, my Final Four uh, looks completely terrible. Uh, 0 for 4. <laughs> so nothing left for me in my bracket. I did have Texas in the Final Four, and that, that looked good for a while, but I uh, did not come to fruition. But uh, the one thing that I feel like I got right, we got right on this show, was that the Michigan State-Kansas State game was going to be a headliner type of game. And that game was not just the best game of this tournament, not just this round. Uh, that's just one of the absolute best games I've seen in the last couple of years in the tournament. So uh, Kansas State, Michigan State, that that was just a fun time. And, you know, even though Kansas State's no longer in the tournament, I, I just have to take a minute here to just give Marquise Noel his credit. He has really turned into the player of this tournament. Uh, He goes for 20 points and 19 assists (laughs) against Michigan State. And it's not just that you have the big production. People will remember the big numbers, the big stats, but they remember signature moments. And to be in a 92-92 game that's already in overtime, it's in the final minute of overtime. And to have that time, that moment, be when you pull out the fake arguing with the coach alley-oop to Keontae Johnson, perfectly executed, looking away. That's just such a signature moment. That's the type of moment that he'll always remember. That's the type of moment that Kansas State fans will always remember. That's going to be played in montages for years to come when it comes to March Madness. It's just such a great moment. And uh, then for Marquise Noel to, to follow that up with 30 points and 12 assists, Against uh, Florida Atlantic, uh, Noel, the unquestioned best player of the tournament. 
Uh, it's, it's unfortunate that it came down to the fact that the last possession Kansas State had the tournament, Marquise Noel came down, Florida Atlantic had a three-point lead, and I thought Noel kind of cruised down the court. Uh, I felt like he thought they had might have had a little more time or something. It only had about six or seven seconds. So he kind of cruised down the court and then passes the ball up with a couple seconds left to, to somebody who just wasn't quite sure what to do with the ball out there. Uh, probably should have been setting the screen or something instead of actually catching a pass. But uh, Kansas State does not get a shot off there, so Florida Atlantic goes and seals that win. Uh, Kansas State in that game was hurt by uh, Keontae Johnson's foul trouble. Johnson played 45 minutes <laughs> against Michigan State. So that, that was a tough, hard-earned win. Uh, he comes back against Florida Atlantic, and because of foul trouble and eventually fouling out, he only played 18 minutes. So that really hurt Kansas State. Keontae Johnson was not on the floor for the last possession, so that's one option taken away from Marquise Noel as he's coming down to try to tie the game. So, again, that unfortunate finish for Kansas State. But, again, a, a star is born for sure. And Marquise Noel, I mean, he's first team all Big 12 this year, so it's not like he came out of nowhere. But – he really, really got the attention of the nation in this tournament in a way that we've seen other players like a Stephen Curry or somebody do in the tournament or even Dwayne Wade uh, when he had his run at Marquette in the tournament. So uh, hats off to him. Uh, give credit to Florida Atlantic, though. Florida Atlantic comes through, and they, again, knock off Kansas State to get to the Final Four. Vladislav Golden was big in this game, and he led the rebounding charge for Florida Atlantic. We talk about Florida Atlantic being kind of an offensive team, but they show different dimensions in this tournament. And so against Kansas State, uh, Florida Atlantic had a 44-22 rebound advantage. And if you have twice as many rebounds as the other guys, there's a great chance you're going to win. So Florida Atlantic controlled the boards in that game. Uh, then going back to Florida Atlantic's win over Tennessee. Again, we talked about how at some point Tennessee was going to miss Zakai Ziegler. And this was the game where they did. But again, Florida Atlantic, a team that has a reputation of being an offensive team, played well defensively. And some of that was just Tennessee not uh, executing well, again, without Ziegler. But uh, you got to be playing some defense for there to be no Tennessee players that scored more than 10 points in that game. And only one starter even reached 10 points for Tennessee against Florida Atlantic. So again, for a team with a offensive reputation, kind of, you know, almost like a finesse kind of reputation, here they are kind of shutting down Tennessee starters and then going into the plan against Kansas state and absolutely controlling the glass. So Good job by Florida Atlantic to get there and, again, show that they can win games different ways. Uh, and, again, just goes back to Kansas State for a second. They were finished. They, they were picked to finish last in the Big 12 in the preseason coaches poll. Not, like, not, not a poll that's just some random people on the Internet. The Big 12 coaches poll had Kansas State finishing last. So for them to make the run they did this year, for them to have two of the five players on the first team, all Big 12 team, big deal for Kansas State. Again, you're, you're frustrated how the season ended, but overall, big-time success. As for Florida Atlantic, again, a season that nobody could see coming, despite the fact that Florida Atlantic spent a lot of the year ranked, finished the year ranked, 
And then that's the thing is as, as much as these teams in the final four feel Cinderella-ish in some ways, these are ranked teams. <laughs> these are top 25 teams. They're just teams that, you know, that's not that weren't necessarily looked at as, you know, a top five team or a top 10 team in most cases outside of UConn at times this year. But, you know, Florida Atlantic, you know, they, they snuck around and they, they were top 25, top 20 at, at some point this year. So, Again, not not Cinderella teams, and when you watch these teams come out and play, they seem to play with an attitude that says, "Yeah, we don't embrace being a Cinderella team. We we belong here." Yeah, you don't win. You don't win thirty plus games being a fluke team. Let's just get that out of the way right now. <laughs> right, right, and I think they've only lost like three games all year long, and and I get that for a lot of the year they didn't have the greatest level of competition. But like you said, you win well over thirty games and only lose three. You're doing something right, like like that. That's not just a fluke, like you said. All right, so getting to San Diego State, who is Florida Atlantic's opponent in the Final Four. This is a team that has just lived up to their reputation throughout the tournament. We went into the tournament. I said San Diego State. They're not a fun team to play. This is an experienced team. This is a team that's basically relying on all seniors and juniors. And they just stick to, we're just going to play defense and we're going to make the game ugly and you're going to have to beat us in a low-scoring affair. They held Alabama, again, the number one overall seed, to 64 points. Every other team San Diego State has faced in the tournament, they've kept them under 60. So this is what they do. They, they just muck up the game, make the game ugly. They defend, and they defend especially well on the perimeter. And so you have a lot of perimeter-oriented teams in college and in the pros. And if you can defend on the perimeter, that's that's a huge deal. So you look at San Diego State's win over Creighton. You have Baylor Sharman, Ryan Nimard, and Trey Alexander. Perimeter guys, they go 10 for 29 from the field, 34.5% shoot. If you can hold three key scores to under 35% from the field, you're probably going to win. So excellent job defensively by San Diego State. That's what they do. It's hard to even, you know, single out one guy for San Diego State because they, they just all have the same identity. They just all go out there. They play a physical brand. They're going to frustrate you. Again, they're going to make the game ugly to watch at times. And then they're going to have enough timely offense to be able to get the job done. As far as the end of that game, you touched on this, Patrick, but I'll just reiterate. It was a foul at the end. You know, I, I keep hearing headlines and conversations about a controversial finish for San Diego State. There was nothing controversial about that. You know, you're, you're playing a guy from behind defensively. You put your hand on his hip. You, you nudge him in the air. That's a foul. And to me, it, it doesn't matter that the game was officiated a little loosely and throughout the game, some contact uh, wasn't called earlier. If you put yourself in a position to leave the game in the referee's hands by committing a foul and then saying, oh, wait, that wasn't a foul earlier in the game, whose fault is that? It's your fault. And this is what we talked about going back to the Super Bowl. You, if, if you hold on the last play of the Super Bowl, it's a penalty. It doesn't, it doesn't matter that you got away with holds earlier in the game. You got caught that time. It, it's no different than, you know, if you, if you get pulled over for speeding, you can say everybody else speeding. We got you. So, yeah, there might be some fouls missed throughout the game, 
But if they catch you on the last foul, there's nothing controversial about that. And yes, we don't like to see a Super Bowl be decided by a defensive holding penalty. But it is what it is. You got to make the call when you see it. We don't like to see basketball games decided by free throws. But it is what it is. You have to call the penalty when you see it. So I have no problem with how that game ended. Not the most climactic finish, but it finished the way it should have. Going back to San Diego State's other win, going back to the Sweet 16 against Alabama, Brandon Miller was just absolutely awful. In that game, 3 for 19 with six turnovers. Now, again, some of that is San Diego State's defense. But Brandon Miller is supposed to be the best player in the country. 3 for 19 with six turnovers can't happen from him. I don't care who you're going against. And here's the thing. It's one thing to just say, okay, I had a bad game against a really, really tough defense. Brandon Miller, for the entire tournament, shot 8 for 41. That is under 20%. 20% from the field. That includes a zero-point game in the first round. Yep. Brandon Miller was absolutely terrible in this tournament. And I can't think of a player, because Brandon Miller is still going to be probably a top three draft pick, at worst top five. If, if this performance knocks him down a spot or two, he, he's still going to be a top five pick. I can't think of a top three, top five type pick, a national player of the year caliber kind of player, being this bad in every round. I don't mean just having one bad game, a bad, bad tournament. I don't, I don't know what to make of it. You can speculate as to whether other things might have been on his mind with you know all the legal matters that, that's going on with him in the program. I don't know what to say. I felt like he settled for a lot of bad contested jump shots. I thought he was a better, more creative offensive score than that. Not to keep settling for one bad jump shot after another, but just, just an absolutely terrible performance from Miller throughout the tournament. And that's a big reason why uh, Alabama didn't quite live up to their number one overall status. Getting to the other side, like you said, we've got UConn and Miami. And to Patrick's point, again, you have three teams in the Final Four who not only don't have a championship, they are making their Final Four debuts. Florida Atlantic, San Diego State, Miami, none of them have ever been to the Final Four before, let alone won a championship. So definitely an historic tournament uh, as far as teams uh, getting farther than they've ever gotten before. And again, no number one seeds even made it to the Elite Eight, let alone the Final Four. So that's a very interesting uh, stat as well. Again, all the two seeds gone, all the three seeds gone. So... Just a wild, wild tournament. And this is, this is what happens when you don't have a dominant team. And it's interesting because, you know, all these teams that have these superstar freshmen and McDonald's All-Americans and the guys that are getting the biggest NIL deals, none of them are in the Final Four. You just have four teams full of solid, experienced players. So it's just interesting to see that dynamic. So, again, getting back to Connecticut versus Miami, Miami themselves, I mean, they, they ravage through the South region. They take out number one and number two in their region. And the thing about Miami is they're getting guys, they're getting that, that superstar performance from a different player 
every time. So we know Isaiah Wong, more often than not, is going to be pretty steady, going to be probably their best player. But against Houston, it's Nigel Pack who steps up with 26 points and seven threes. That puts them over the top against Houston. Then you get to Texas. It's Jordan Miller's turn. He goes for 27 points without missing a shot. If you, if you score 27 points and you only took seven shots from the field, that's a pretty good day. And so, again, winning it in different ways. Uh, Miami against Texas, they have a 32-15 to 15 advantage in free throws. And you talked about how Miami was down and had to come back. Texas, you know, they, they helped that out. Too many turnovers, too many missed jumpers. And why are you fouling so much when you're a hit? Miami was down 13 with under 15 minutes left. So Miami's in comeback mode. And they end up shooting more than twice as many free throws. Why are you fouling when you have the lead? We keep talking about these. These teams just don't, a lot of these teams just don't seem to understand how to play with the lead. Fouling certainly isn't the way. Giving the other team points and stopping the clock, not a way to preserve a lead. What really hurt Texas as well was the absence of Dylan DeSue. And he was a big reason they got to the Sweet 16. DeSue's injury status, he apparently suffered a foot injury against Penn State. And it was either downplayed or not talked about at all. But we just kind of found out at the last minute, oh, by the way, Dylan DeSue's hurt. I might have changed my prediction for this region had I, had I known that in advance. Now, Texas was able to get past Xavier with uh, Dylan DeSue only playing a couple minutes and then having to leave because of uh, either a re-aggravation or just couldn't play through his foot injury, but he didn't play at all against Miami. And I felt like that hurt Texas some because without Dylan DeSue, Texas became too perimeter-oriented and, again, just missed a lot of jump shots, didn't have much of a presence inside, didn't, get, didn't have that guy that could consistently score in the mid-range and in the paint. Felt like Dylan DeSue would have picked up a lot of that slack like he did against Penn State. So that ended up hurting Texas, but Miami able to take advantage and uh, get down to the Final Four. Uh, and with Miami against Houston, there's a lot of bad shooting uh, from the outside from Houston and Miami, again, able to take advantage. So Miami's playing well enough to win. Connecticut, on the other hand, UConn. Like you said, they're destroying people. <laughs> they beat Arkansas by 23 and Gonzaga by 28 to advance to the Final Four. And you talk about how they're punishing people. It's crazy that it seems like the farther they get in the tournament, the more they're beating people down. They beat St. Mary's, I think, by 15, going back a few rounds. So it seems like ever since, not including the first round, but ever since they advanced to the round of 32, the beatdowns have gotten worse and worse. And... When you talk about teams not knowing how to play with the lead, that's not UConn. UConn was in a tight game early on against Arkansas. They went on a 14-0 run in the first half, and they had a double-digit lead for the rest of the game. Against Gonzaga, that game was competitive. UConn was up by a decent amount at halftime, but that game was competitive going into halftime. Connecticut, to your point with the, the comparison to Golden State, they start the second half against Gonzaga on a 21-5 run. Game's over. It was never competitive again. 
So I give UConn credit because they're the one team that is showing once we get you down, we are putting our foot on your neck. There is no coming back. There is no all, all of a sudden we're going to start turning the ball over, taking bad shots, taking silly fouls to let the other team back in the game. And to that point, Andre Jackson Jr. against Gonzaga, 10 assists, no turnovers. When you've got a guard who's making plays like that for his teammates and not turning the ball over, not only is he making easy shots for his teammates, but again, by protecting the ball, he is stopping you from being able to come back in the game because you're not being able to come back in the game by getting easy buckets in transition. you got to take the ball out from under the basket and, and try to make something happen. And when Connecticut can set up their defense, they've got a lot of big, strong, tough guys who you're going to have trouble scoring against. So uh, UConn getting the job done at both ends of the floor. And, uh, yeah, there's no question they look like the most formidable team. Uh, just quickly about the Gonzaga-UCLA game. That was one of the weirder games that I've seen. So you had UCLA up big in the first half. They were up 13. They blow that lead. So the game's tied mid uh, halfway through the second half. And then the next thing you know, Gonzaga's up 10. So you have a 23-point swing in the second half. And... So now with two and a half minutes left, Gonzaga is up 10. That game should be over. You should be able to turn that game off for two and a half minutes left. You're up 10. But Gonzaga authored a master class on how to blow a lead. I'm talking silly fouls. You give up multiple and ones. And again, like, why are you fouling when you're ahead late in the game? And not just fouling, but soft fouls to let, it was always Jaime Jaquez Jr. each time. To let Hawkins go to the basket, draw contact, get and ones. How is that happening? If you're going to foul, make the foul worth it. And I'm not saying do something dirty, but I'm saying you can't let Hawkins continue to get off one shot after another after he's fouled when you're ahead. You miss free throws down the stretch, Gonzaga did. And that includes Drew Timmy. And Timmy dominated this game. But when he had a chance to ice the game, about 25 seconds left, he missed two free throws. I mean, Gonzaga did everything wrong in this game to give up the lead. So now you're up two. Again, Drew Timmy, your best player, your all-time leading scorer, misses two free throws. You come back the other end, and you give up a wide-open three. Okay, if you give up a wide-open two, that's, that's not good. But if you give up a wide-open two, the worst thing that can happen to you is overtime. You give up a wide-open three. You give up the lead. And it just It's a bunch of bad basketball from Gonzaga. But Jared Strother comes through and hits the big shot from, excuse me, not Jared, Julian Strother comes through and hits the big shot, shot to put Gonzaga ahead, give him the win. And it, he really bailed them out because, I'm sorry, Gonzaga, I, I felt like they didn't deserve to beat UCLA with how poorly they closed that game out. Strother bails them out, but it just felt like Gonzaga kind of used up all their goodwill in that game. And by the time they got to UConn, it, it was a wrap. Punished. So, uh, as we discussed, the Final Four, Florida Atlantic versus San Diego State. I, I have all the same picks you have, Patrick. I've, I've got San Diego State winning against Florida Atlantic. Again, I just think that their identity is just so tough. They can hold, to me, anybody to a subpar offensive performance. And I just don't know if Florida Atlantic is going to be able to match the physicality and match the defensive touch toughness that they're going to need in this game. So I've got San Diego State 
And like I said, UConn, they have, they look like the most complete team right now. They get it done at both ends of the floor. They can beat you inside with Adama Sanogo. They can beat you outside with Jordan Hawkins. Their role players are stepping up and having nice games. Like I said, you got a point guard protecting the basketball and playing efficient ball. Uh, so I'll go with them, even though, again, Miami seems to find a new X factor every game. I'm going to go with uh, UConn there. So national championship, San Diego State versus UConn. I'm going to, just like you, again, UConn just looks like the most complete team, the most confident team, the team that looks like they're going to roll. Let's not forget that UConn started the season looking like one of the best teams in the country. They hit a midseason low and then finished the season looking like one of the best teams in the country. So, you know, there, there, there were signs there for UConn. Unlike these other teams, there were signs there for UConn that maybe they could make this type of run. So UConn over San Diego State in the national championship is my prediction. And since that's my prediction, enjoy an all-Florida national championship, Miami versus Florida Atlantic. Yeah, I was going to say, because we're both <laughs> saying it's San Diego State versus UConn and UConn winning, Florida Atlantic and Miami, welcome welcome to, to the bet, championship. Bet the house. <laughs> bet the house. Um, yeah, just to follow up on some of your points, um, especially with this – college basketball season i mean i know my final four had a couple upsets in it um i still had alabama and houston making it but as we discussed in the round of 64 we were both concerned about sazer's injury uh and that came to fruition later in the tournament um and and i didn't see kansas getting losing to arkansas which uconn probably would have smoked kansas too but that probably would have been that probably would have been a better game than uconn arkansas let's just be honest um (laughs) yeah but just like I said with Purdue, when I said I didn't trust Purdue, I didn't have them losing to Fairleigh Dickinson, but I, I didn't I didn't trust Purdue um, because if you watch this entire college basketball season this year, Julius, it's just as we've talked about, there's been there hasn't been one dominant team, and when you've watched how some of these people have lost, Purdue was the number one team in the country like five or six times this year, and then they would collapse to teams like Ohio State or lose to Maryland, right? And it's just like, if you're the number one team, you're not losing to those teams. I don't care if it's on the road. You should be dominating those teams. Those teams aren't supposed to be better than you, right? Um, and that was kind of that was kind of all year long. There wasn't, even though I know Alabama kind of separated themselves from the pack at the end of the season, the, the, it just, there wasn't really, even Houston. Houston was, the, was one overall sometimes during the year. And just like, there was always that one or two bad losses once someone hit number one that you just knew that this season and then the top 25 fluctuated so much this year. I, I wouldn't, I'm not surprised by the, I mean, obviously I'm surprised by Florida Atlantic, but um, San Diego state, Miami, UConn. I mean, I didn't have Miami making this run, even though they won the ACC, but um, it's not surprising at the same time, if that makes sense. Like, like, Oh, it's kind of shocking that you have two fives and nine and a four. But at the same time, like, I didn't really have Texas going that far. I didn't believe in Texas that much. Uh, once Sazer was hurt, I, I, I've said this. I said, I don't think Houston can make it. I'm just going to stick with them. But, like, you know, those were the one and two seeds over in the Midwest. And then so you had Xavier as the three. So, I mean, you don't really have, like, world beaters over there. You know what I mean? So, like, and look at it. Arizona went out round one. That's a two seed to Princeton. You had Purdue go out round one to Fairleigh Dickinson, right? Like, I mean, it's just <laughs> – you had the two C Marquette go out round of thirty two to Michigan State. I mean, it's just like I don't know. It, it was a it was a very interesting tournament. 
Um, again, besides UConn, who has blown everyone out that they've played, no one else has really dominated every game they've played in this tournament. So, um, again, that's why I'm going with UConn. Um, I just want to touch on some points again, like that you made. The Brandon Miller played horribly in this tournament. I completely agree with you. Uh, the fact he had zero points against a 16 seed and a 16 seed that played the play-in game is a just absurdity in itself. Um, you know, and I just the the San Diego Crane game. Uh, I touched on it, and as you said, it was a foul. I said it was a foul. Uh, I don't I don't understand why people are upset about it. I haven't seen as much chatter about oh you can't call that kind of like in the Super Bowl, but at the same time. Um, you have to call it. It, it, it is a foul. Yeah. So you can't let someone push somebody and then just be like, because it's about to be overtime, we're not going to call this foul. Um, like I said, I'm more upset with the foul they took before that foul. And that's what people should be upset about, about the coaching, about telling your kid, take the foul in that situation. Because um, he blatantly took the foul. So you know he was told to do that. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that cost Creighton more than... Obviously, the free throw cost Creighton, but uh, I think that play right there cost them more than the foul that people are saying you can't call. Again, I'm just saying I don't like games to end that way because obviously it takes away from the thrill and, and the fun of the game, but you have to... I don't want them to not call the correct play. Like You, you got to call it. Um, but again, I, I, think, I think a big thing that people need to look at um, and I don't know why De'Aaron Fox came out talking about he hates watching college basketball and it's and it's not good. Um, have you seen? Well, let me stay to you. Have Have you seen some of the NBA games, De'Aaron Fox? I just I just wanted to make sure that you you know that the Pistons and Rockets and Spurs all play in the NBA this year, right? Like, like there there have been some ugly games in the NBA this year. Um, but I I think coaching and just teaching these guys from a younger age like this goes this is going to go to like AAU ball and stuff because uh the late game just mistakes and boneheadedness and 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 just atrocities that had happened in this tournament it's translating to the NBA it's happening in the NBA as well so you can't tell me that it's only a college issue I don't know if it's the the generation of players I don't know if it's just what they're coaching at a young age now like you're the best player just go do something um, because the fact that guys were just not dribbling into fouls or Virginia ha heaving up a, a thing to half court, like there were just so many mental mistakes. The Memphis guy jumping in the air and trying to make a pass. Like there's just so many, uh, the San Diego State game, they almost blew it by throwing an alley-oop to the wrong team. I mean, there's just, there's just so many examples. And like you said, Gonzaga just doing dumb things. Texas doing dumb things when they have the lead to, to even make the game closer than it should have been there. He shouldn't have had to make a 45. It was like 35 feet, but he shouldn't have to make a half court three pointer to win a game. Like you just shouldn't have to do those things. Kansas blowing against Arkansas and you're a number one seed. Like there was just a lot of that this year. And, and I think that was the more disappointing thing for me um, for this entire tournament was just games that you think are over or you should or you should win because you're up by three with 10 seconds left and then you're turning over an inbound pass and then you're fouling a three-point shooter um you know just 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 things that shouldn't happen i just uh it's it's beyond me i just i don't i don't know Julie. that those that was the most frustrating part for the tournament for me again a great tournament i love all the upsets i love the fact that Potentially, we could have a new champion that for a team that's never won a championship. 
Um, but I just, all the late game stuff is just kind of like annoying to watch as a guy who played, grew up playing basketball. It's just, it just kind of irritates me because I'm just like, what are we doing? I would have been benched immediately. You know, like I just, I think we're giving the coaches now are just kind of being told if that's your best player, just shut up and let them do what they want. But at the same time, if you taught them what to do in late game situations, you probably would have won some of these games. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you all the way. There's just, you know, I, I talk about teams not knowing how to close games, and some of it is just basic fundamental ball. Like I said, not fouling and certainly not giving up and one opportunities when you're ahead late and there's no need to contest. Uh, teams being overly reliant on the three-pointer. It, it's cool when you get three or four of them to go down. Uh, it's not so cool when you start going, you know, one for 10, two, four, 11 on threes, and you're allowing another team to get back into the game because you're taking all these bad shots from the perimeter. So um, I'm seeing a lot of that. Uh, the other thing I'll, I've said it before, I'll say it again. I would love to see the foul limit raised from five to six in, in college basketball, men's and women's. And we can get to, we'll, we'll talk about women's later, but, like I said, Keontae Johnson only playing 18 minutes against Florida Atlantic because of the, the, the foul trouble situation. That's that, that that helped to decide the game. Again, I don't want to take anything from Florida Atlantic and some like the last foul that Keontae Johnson had. It wasn't a smart foul if you have four fouls. So again, not understanding game scenarios. Keontae Johnson got away with an almost foul before and then committed a silly fifth foul that was just completely unnecessary. So I, I do want to see the foul limit increase because I think it has too much of an impact when we talk about uh, star players coming out of games. You're also seeing like a lack of depth in college basketball. Uh, with, with a team like Creighton, again, I talked about how Shireman, Neymar, and Alexander combined to go 10 for 29. Well, under normal circumstances, with your guys off like that, you'd like to be able to turn to somebody on the bench. Creighton didn't go to their bench at all because they didn't have anybody to go to. So to me, we're seeing a, a lack of depth. And some of that is because you have players leaving and going all over the place every year. And, uh, you know, if they're, if they're not leaving school altogether or leaving college altogether, they're jumping from, from one school to another. So it's hard to develop any continuity. Um, and it's just comes with the territory. I don't, I don't mind the player movement, but I'm just talking about this being one of the repercussions of all that player movement, that player freedom, that player empowerment is you get these situations where guys don't know how to play with each other. Guys don't know how to handle late game situations. And that's why you have a final four like we have this year where you have teams that, you know, may not be the most talented teams. There might not be a bunch of lottery picks in this final four, but they're just a bunch of guys who have played together, have plenty of experience at the collegiate level and know what to do in those late game situations. And that alone takes you a long way. Going back to a team like Purdue, I talked about it at the time. You have a national player of the year who's seven, three going up against the shortest team in the field. And you don't feed the big man. That's just silly basketball. That that's how you lose. And, and I'll say it again. Fairly Dickinson didn't even play that well against Purdue. It's one thing to go against an underdog team who just comes out and they just shoot the lights out and had a game in their lives. That can happen. That is the nature of a one-and-done type of situation. And to a degree, that happened to Arizona against Princeton. 
Baylor Dickinson didn't play well. They didn't shoot the ball that great. They just let Purdue beat Purdue. They just let Purdue lose on turnovers, bad passes, bad shots from the perimeter, and insisting on shooting from the outside against a team that you had such a clear and distinct physical advantage over. So not understanding matchups, not understanding how to exploit mismatches. Again, just a lot of basic things, like you talked about, things that you know as a basketball player growing up. When you're a kid, you know, get the ball to that guy because his man can't guard you, you know to do that when you're seven, eight years old. So to see all these college teams, and in some cases high-profile college teams, not be able to do these simple, basic things, like you said, it leads to a Final Four that, again, nobody predicted, or very, 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 very few people predicted, but a Final Four that's not too shocking because, as we talked about from the beginning of the tournament, there was no team... That was, you know, a Grim Reaper type of team. There was no team that you looked at and said, that team can't be beat. Or it'd be a shock if they lost. Like, Purdue losing in the first round? People are like, I had them them losing the second round anyway. Arizona losing in the first round? I didn't have them going far anyway. Kansas losing? No, they didn't have a coach. (laughs) You know, it's like, the big schools who lost, it wasn't even a surprise. And when you talk about a team like, North Carolina not even qualifying for the tournament uh, despite the fact that they were the preseason number one, despite the fact that they were in the national championship last year and brought back most of those same players. It it just speaks to how, again, these schools that have more talent per se just aren't playing with uh, good fundamental basketball. And so you're allowing teams with less talent who know how to play the game to be able to hang in and ultimately beat you. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see if this becomes a pattern or if this is just a one-off, a weird year. But this feels like something that could be potentially become a pattern. Not to say that we're going to see one, two, and threes all eliminated before the final four of a year, but it wouldn't be a surprise to start seeing more of these, quote, mid-majors make deeper runs, teams who have more experience, teams who have a bunch of fourth and fifth year guys make runs. And let's not forget the COVID year is a factor as well, because now you've got more fifth year guys and even in some cases, six year guys than ever. So if you're going to play bad fundamental basketball, these teams with now extra experience, they're going to take advantage. And we're seeing that. Well, yeah, Memphis had that dude that was like 27 years old. And I was like, what is happening? Why is he still playing college basketball? Go, go to, go to work. Why are you? Why? Um, I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole uh, about our NCAA talk, but do you think uh, nil has anything to do with the continuity issues and, and some of the things that we're talking about? Just thinking outside the box a little bit um, and to some of the points you made about uh, guys aren't really playing together and they don't have the fundamental basketball. They just, uh, do you think nil, uh, you know, just thinking about like guys who uh, maybe in the past before nil would like maybe go to the same school with one of their AAU friends or one of the guys they played high school ball with. Um, and they're, they already kind of have some chemistry there. Um, and that's maybe why these mid majors, um, you know, or some of these smaller schools that, that guys are going there because they just want to play basketball. They want, 
their coach to coach them. And, I mean, they may be getting little deals here and there, but nothing like millions of dollars, right? Um, and, and, and so they're there for the coaching. They're there for the love of the game versus, Hey, I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying Brandon Miller has, but let's just say, Hey, I'm LeBron James, right? Uh, 5 million to come to Ohio state. Cool. I'm going to Ohio state, right? Like, do you think that nil actually plays a part, um, in this? Because you've seen it happen in the football ranks where, uh, someone goes to the hometown school or goes to the school that's close to home. And then here comes, I don't know, Ohio State, Michigan, Alabama. Here's three million bucks. Why don't you come to our school versus what are you getting there? A hundred K, right? And then they leave to go to Alabama. So um, what do you think? Do you think that's going to play? I, th- I feel like that's going to have a bigger impact as we get more years into it. Uh, and I think you're just going to see more people playing for themselves versus for the team like you've seen in the past. I think that NIL has unofficially been a factor for a long time, especially when you talk about star prospects. I I said this years and years ago when OJ Mayo made the decision to go to USC. I'm like, wait a minute. This is one of the top players in in the nation. This this is somebody who who probably could make the leap from high school to NBA. (laughs) And you choose USC? Like, that had to be NIL. Just unofficially. He was the Reggie Bush of, of basketball. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, exactly. So I'm like, you know, I, I'm not willing to bury my head in the sand and act like NIL means players are getting paid for the first time. No. That said, where I do think NIL starts to come into play as a factor is not with the star players. The star players were always getting paid. It's the secondary guys. It's that guy that's averaging seven points a game but wants a, wants a $2 billion deal. What that creates is now guys who aren't that good are are looking for that superstar treatment. And as a result, everybody wants to move around everywhere. So you see them plenty, you see more and more guys with their second or third school. And again, not that great. And it's it's one thing that you you talked about Keontae Johnson. It's the one thing to have that extreme of a situation, right? Where you're, coming back and you don't have a choice but to transfer because the school's afraid of what might happen to you. And I, I, I get why Florida made the decision they made, but I get why Keontae Johnson made the decision he made. I'm not talking about a situation like that, but I'm, I'm watching other guys enter this transfer portal year after year, and I'm like, you're not that good. But when, when you start looking for all these NIL deals, and again, eventually if you look around hard enough, somebody's going to say, okay, We'll throw a few dollars at this guy. He's he's a decent player. He's they'll they'll focus on one thing. Okay, maybe he shoots the three a little better than most, or maybe he's a decent defender, or whatever the case is. And then all of a sudden, that guy's getting nil money to be significant nil money to be an average, mediocre kind of player. So I do think it becomes a factor there. And to your point, the more you start focusing on the other stuff, the less basketball becomes a priority and you know I I do think there's some of that going on as well where like you said guys are trying to brand themselves guys are trying to sell themselves because that that's the name of the game now now you can do it freely and publicly so you know it it just it does create some of what you talked about where guys uh, can be in it for themselves guys to take 
maybe take bad shots because they feel like I've got to try to get these 20 points and I've only got four points at halftime, so now I've really got to press. So you can see some of that, and especially with the younger players. I, I think you see it more with the younger players. They're being exposed to new things. They're being exposed to money and opportunities that they didn't have before. And it, it's fun. It's fun. And it, it can be a distraction. It can make you feel like kind of you already made it. So to some degree with certain players, again, this doesn't apply to everybody, but with certain players, they might lose some hunger because, okay, this this $3 million deal I signed in college is more money than I've ever seen, more money than I never thought I'd, had, I'd have. So now not necessarily striving as hard for the next level because this feels like a lot of money already. So I don't think it can be ignored. And especially in basketball more than football, because in basketball, one player can make such a difference in football. You've got 90 plus players on a roster. So if you lose a couple, you can figure out a way around that in yeah. basketball. You know, I talked about it with Dylan DeSue and, and we've talked about it with Marcus Sasser and Zakai Ziegler. If you can lose one guy or have one guy be compromised and you're the entire dynamic of your team changes. So all of that plays a factor in NIL. And I, I, I do, yeah, I have to think, I have to say NIL is a factor. Is it the only factor? No, I, I think a lot of it still comes down to just guys wanting to highlights, taking bad shots. Uh, we're in an era where the three-point shot is glorified way more than it should be. We're in an era where big men want to play like guards. Uh, we're in an era where, you know, you got players saying, oh, we don't, we don't need a post-up game. Well, who, who, who wants to waste time going with their back to the basket? That, that's old basketball. And, okay, now you don't know how to hold a lead because you don't know how to take the ball, go in the post, and get an easy bucket when the tide is turning against you and the other teams making a comeback. So there are certainly other factors besides NIL, but I have to agree with you that NIL is a factor. Yeah, like I said, I'm gonna have to get a couple more years of of data and just watching and, and recruiting classes coming through just to kind of see if anything if anything does change. Because I mean, we do know even like you said, unofficially, <laughs> deals were already happening. Um, We've known that for years and, and decades, but uh, I just want to see now that it's out in the open. And like you said, you might not even have to make it to the NBA to become a millionaire anymore. Well, we know that's we know that's a fact. You don't have to make it now. Uh, how does that change? You know, like a high school kid, like okay, instead of me having to play 15 years in the league or have a 10 year NBA career, I could have a three year college career and, and call my life is set. So uh, I think it's going to make a difference. Um, and I think it's going to change how things happen in college basketball. Um, but we'll see, you know, I, I mean, if someone's good enough, they're still going to make the league, right? Like it, it, the money's yeah. not going to make a difference. Um, right. but it will be interesting to see, I guess, like long-term, uh, you know, after a couple of years and a couple of recruiting classes kind of see, because now you don't need to go to the North Carolinas and the Kentuckys and the, and you've kind of already seen that in the last few years, Absolutely. Uh, you don't need to go to those "quote unquote" blue blood schools anymore, uh, and this this year proves it. You do not need to be at a major program, uh, "quote unquote" major program, uh, to make it to the Final Four, to make it to the Elite Eight. Uh, as you said, no one seeds worth the Elite Eight. So um, I think it's just going to be interesting to see how college basketball. It already college basketball already had the most parity out of any sports um, 
And I think it's just going to become even more muddled and even more the top 25 will, will not be the same every week. And, you know, just moving for like one seeds are going to be more like three and four seeds moving forward. And like nine seeds are going to be more like six and seven. Seeds. So it's just going to be interesting uh, once we see kind of, you know, a couple of years down the road, how it all plays out. So we'll get into some uh, women's March Madness a little later on. Uh, right now we've got Virginia Tech and Ohio State live. And so we're trying to give that game an opportunity to continue to develop. That's of as of this conversation at one point game in the third quarter. So uh, we will get to women's basketball. So no, do not fret. Do not worry. We'll be there. For now, uh, we're going to get to some NBA updates. And I'm I'm sorry. I, I, I can't resist. I, I got to start with what has become probably my favorite topic. And I mean that not in an ironic sense, the Dallas Mavericks, the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, I believe they did win tonight against, against the Pacer team that may not be trying all that hard. <clears throat> so I think they they would be up to, to four and eight now when Luka Doncic and Kyrie Irving play together. But let's, let's talk about what's happened to the Mavericks in the last week or so. First, you have a game against Golden State where they ultimately lose by two in a game where they had a play in the third quarter where they felt like it was going to be their ball coming out of a timeout. It wasn't. You look at the replay, the referee clearly stated Golden State ball and then indicated timeout Dallas. How do you get that it's Dallas basketball after? After that call, I don't know. But they were fully convinced it was their ball. They line up on the wrong side of the court, and as a result, Golden State gets an uncontested dunk. Now they want to protest the results of that game. Excuse me. Nobody wants to talk about the fact that since we want to just say, oh, a a random dunk in the third quarter is what cost you the game in a two-point game, let's talk about the fact that at the end of the game, Luka Doncic had the ball right underneath the basket. It missed. How about those two points? And nobody wants to talk about that. Everybody wants to put the focus on, oh, the refs blew the call here, which they did not blow. Again, if you can't see them make an indication of whose ball it is, that's your fault. Maybe all of the Golden State players lining up under your basket should have gave you an indication as to where the ball was going. But everybody wants to talk about that play that happened in the third quarter and those two points. Nobody wants to talk about uh, Luka Doncic blowing a layup at the end of the game. Help them lose. And I just, as I've continued to say this, I'm just tired of the lack of accountability when it comes to Luka Doncic. If people don't want to crown him, there's people that want to make him an MVP front runner every preseason. And then when we get to a moment like this, nobody wants to have the conversation with him choking and blowing a layup. Let's call it what it is. And I just, I just wanted to be treated the same way it would be treated if players you didn't like did the same thing. If Anthony Davis blew a layup in a two-point loss, at the end of a two-point loss, we wouldn't hear the end of it. It would be Anthony Davis's fault. It wouldn't be on, on the refs or who did something else during the game. It'd be on him. If Kevin Durant missed that layup, people would laugh at him. Let's not even get into what would have happened if Russell Westbrook were to miss a layup with the game on the line. 
Now, people consider Luka Doncic to be better than all these guys. Lightyear is better than Westbrook and certainly better than other guys on it. Why is there no accountability when he blows a game like that? Now, after that, the Mavericks have two games against the Hornets. The Hornets, who at full strength, weren't good this year. The Hornets, who are now without LaMelo Ball, Terry Rozier III, and Kelly Oubre Jr. Probably their three best scores, at least their top two scores. And you get swept in a home-and-home. Home. Swept. And you need these games. These losses to the Hornets temporarily put you out of the play-in. Not the play-offs, the play-in. Where's Luka? Win these games. Where's the accountability that other star players get when they're losing these kind of games? With Luka, all that matters is he gets his stats. He had 40 points. He had seven threes. That's all that matters. No. Because when other players you don't like put up the same kind of numbers and lose, you say it's just about the numbers. It's just about stat padding. I want the same energy here. Where is it? To make matters worse, Luka Doncic in the second game against the Hornets got a 16th technical foul, which means a suspension. But wait, but wait, because he's Teflon Doncic, the league steps in and says, oh no, he's not allowed to get suspended. When Dylan Brooks gets his 16th technical foul, he gets suspended. When Draymond Green gets his 16th technical foul, he gets suspended. When Luka gets his 16th technical, all of a sudden the rules change. So even the league itself, forget fans, forget coaches, the league itself. And I will, I will say Jason Kidd is the one person on earth who seems to hold Luka accountable sometimes. The league itself is not holding Luka Doncic accountable. There is no reason Luka Doncic should have been eligible to play tonight. How, how do you get a verbal technical foul rescinded? It's one thing if you got a technical foul rescinded because it looked like you may have touched the ref inappropriately. And I don't... I don't Mean that in a joking kind of way. It means, you know, if it looks like you shoved the ref or something, and then the replay show, no, that's not really what happened. You just kind of accidentally bumped into him. Okay, I can understand that kind of technical being rescinded. But to rescind a technical foul because you said something to the ref, there's no way to prove what you said or how it was received. So for Luca to have that technical foul rescinded just because he's Luca, the league itself will not hold this man accountable. And it's disgusting for me to see this type of preferential treatment. And again, it's one thing to see it from the fans. The fans are going to be emotional and inconsistent. Fans are going to be illogical. Fans are going to have double standards for the league itself to feed into this, to do everything they can to push this guy to be the next one to the point where you're not suspending him when he should have been suspended per your rules. That's disgusting to me. So to recap, the Mavericks lost a home game to the Warriors. And again, losing uh, at home to the Warriors is like losing to the Rockets. And then you get swept by the Hornets. And I don't hear anybody holding Luka Doncic accountable. When is it going to happen? You know what you think, Patrick? I think you're a hater. No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, 
Yeah, no, it, it, I, I'm trying to think, and I've been trying to think, uh, I knew you were going to, I knew you were going to say something about this today. Um, <laughs> and I've been trying to think of a time where I, I can remember this happening and then nothing came to mind off the top of my head. Um, I, yeah, it's not something like you can go back and watch the tape and be like, oh, what, let's lip read what he said. Um, <laughs> it, it, you know, I just, I don't know, I don't know why. Or how? I, I mean, I don't. I haven't heard any reasoning from the league office of why it was taken back. Um, I just don't. Yeah, I, I can't remember another situation like this happening. I, you know, I'm sure if Michael Jordan had something like this going on, maybe they would. Maybe they would do the same thing. If he, but um, I, I really. I, I have not, I think you summed it up pretty perfectly. I don't really have more words on this particular incident. I, the only thing I can think of is they want the Mavericks in there and not the Oklahoma City Thunder for revenue and TV purposes. Uh, you, you have Luca, who is a big draw, um, and we know that all sports, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, is all about money. It's all they care about is money. They don't care who wins, who loses, they care about what's going to give them the best uh, bottom dollar. So uh, that's not Oklahoma City Thunder being the 10. That would be the Mavericks being the 10 or getting in to at least the play-in. Again, as we've talked about multiple times throughout the last four weeks, um, the West is just so, you know, just so tight right now from four all the way through, we'll say, 12. Um that it can change nightly. So they definitely I they definitely want to make sure the Mavericks get in or give them the best chance to get in uh without making it obvious in my opinion. That's the only thing I can think of because definitely should have been suspended. Um it's interesting to see moving forward. Is he not going to get any more technicals until the end of the season? Because it resets once you get into the playoffs. Um, yeah. do they get rescinded the rest of the season? Yeah, I, I just, it's, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's weird. Um, he, he also came out with a weird quote talking about, I'm not having fun anymore. It's not just basketball anymore. And I don't know if that's because now there's expectations because y'all made it to the Western Conference Finals last year. Uh, but you should just have known that coming into this season. Um, because you made the Western Conference Finals. Like, I, I just don't understand. As a human being, I feel like if I did something amazing at work, my boss would be like, hey, are you going to do that again today? Like, I feel like that's just normal for expectations to shift after you've kind of shown you can get somewhere or do something. So, uh, I, I mean, I don't know if that was a shot at Kyrie, which, as a lot of people say, everywhere Kyrie goes, um, it, he leaves it and burnt down when he leaves. So um, I'm I'm interested to see if after the season, depending on what happens with Dallas, if they make the playoffs or not. Um, yeah, what what that quote was towards because um, you definitely don't want your star player not being happy, um, and it seems like no matter who they bring into Dallas. Um, Luca's not happy, and and maybe they should have kept Jalen Brunson. You know, I, I I just don't I don't know. You know, I 
this team hasn't looked good all year, uh, in my opinion. Um, I did not. I said I did not like the Dorian Finney-Smith trade just because this team didn't play defense that well before the trade. And so you're like, let's get rid of our best defender. I just, um, again, I know defense isn't a big, big deal in, in this new era of NBA, but you still need to play some defense. So, um, and then in the Nets, man, um, Mikel Bridges is, is going off in his new role as not having to sit back to Chris Paul, DeAndre Ayton, and, and Devin Booker, but we can talk about that later. Uh, but, yeah, just not a huge fan of what Dallas is. I didn't, I didn't like their roster after the Kyrie trade, and don't get me wrong, I, I think Kyrie on the court is a top 10 NBA player. I think Luka's a top 10 NBA player. Um, but as we've seen so far, again, it's a small sample size. Uh, it's not like they're together for a full season, but uh, it just doesn't look like they know when to kind of let the other one go off and what to do. And I feel like Luke has been pressing a lot recently, but I, I again, I'm at a loss for words about how they took away a technical after it had already been given. That one wasn't that like, you could go back and look at the tape and like, did he mean to throw the ball at their face or was he just kind of like not looking and pass it away? Like it's not, you know, it's not something like that that you can go back and check. So it was definitely an interesting uh, recent of that. And he, he should have been suspended and we'll see if he gets any more technicals, you know, to close out this season. Um, I'll stay in the West since we're already here. Um, and we'll, we're talking about, you know, people coming back or should have been back. So, Paul George got injured, and that's going to be huge for the L.A. Clippers moving forward. Um, they only have lost one uh, since he went out, um, but you can tell that that offense and that team and the defense, too, uh, just looks a lot different without Paul George on the court. Um, hopefully he can make it back in time for the playoffs. Again, if they make the playoffs, because the West is so jammed up from 4 to, again, we'll say 12, Um that you just you, you're going to need your star players, um, and and I know we'll we'll dive more into that injury, but we also had John Morant return, Carl uh, Anthony Towns, LeBron James, um, so there's lots of guys coming back, um, some guys getting injured, uh, and and um, Memphis man they they've won six straight and they're nine and one in their last ten, so. A team that looked like they had nothing going right with them for the injuries, John Morant not being with the team, um, Dylan Brooks getting fined and, and pushing cameramen over. Uh, and, and his suspension sticking. And his suspension sticking. Um, <laughs> they're only three games back of the Nuggets, and, and they clinched. They're, they're the second team to clinch uh, in the West. And and they're they they're a hot team right now, man. They're they're playing really good basketball, and, and it's kind of looking like early season Grizzlies when John Morant said I'm good in the West versus midway season Grizzlies. So uh, with John Morant back, this is definitely not a team to sleep on going into the playoffs. Um, so that that's just real interesting. Lakers are up to ninth, but again, everyone in the West from four to twelve is right there with each other. So um, the Lakers were actually playing some really good basketball without LeBron James. So I'm interested to see how trying to work him back into the rotation. Uh, again, he only played 
18 minutes or 19 minutes in his return. He had the most points for the Lakers in his return, and he didn't even play 20 minutes. So that's concerning to me that that when he comes back, the Lakers kind of revert back to being the old Lakers. Um, Anthony Davis, besides his eight-point game, which was just a horrendous game, uh, has been balling while, while LeBron is out. And what I would like to see is kind of like what Dwayne Wade did for LeBron in Miami. I would kind of like to see LeBron be like, all right, AD, this is your team. We can run pick and rolls with you. We can facilitate the offense through you. You can anchor our defense. Like I would like to see him kind of pass the torch. And I don't get me wrong. LeBron is having an incredible season, uh, still a top 10 NBA player, but um, he's 20 years in, just a ton of mileage on his body for all the playoffs he's been through, all the games he's played. That's why his injuries are starting to creep up and pile up on him the last few years. Um, I just would like to see him. I mean, the, again, the Lakers were playing really good. I'm not saying that they were playing championship-level basketball, but they were playing good basketball to get them back into the playoff hunt. Um, and when he came back, it was just kind of disheartening to see that he led the team again in 18 minutes or whatever, um, leading them in scoring coming off the bench. That's just I, I just not a recipe for success, obviously, since they lost. Um, so, yeah, anybody else that you were interested to see come back uh, or any injuries? I know you want to talk more about the Paul George injury, um, you know, that, that you think is going to have uh, major effects moving forward. Uh, definitely. And, you know, it's, it's nice to actually be able to talk about guys coming back. Uh, there's still, of course, more injuries to talk about, but it's, it's nice for us to be able to talk about guys actually returning. Um, so just to close the book on the Mavericks real quick, you know, we the talk is always Mavericks defense, Mavericks defense. They, they got nobody who could defend. When you look at three of their recent losses, again, two to the Hornets and one to Memphis, They've scored under 110 points in each of those games. And I've talked about this before. 110 is an average performance for the worst offense in basketball in this day and age. So 110 is, is a bad night. When we talked about the Mavericks, when they got Kyrie Irving, the thought was they're going to be able to outscore every, everybody, or at least they're going to be able to put up points. Will they be able to defend? The issue recently has been the offensive side of the ball. And that's, the discouraging part if you're somebody who's rooting for the Mavericks is seeing how bad or how just the lack of continuity in their offense is affecting the team overall. They're losing games where they're only giving up about 110. You know, they, they, they gave up 110 and lost to the Hornets. You know, that, that should be good enough defensively to win a basketball game, especially when you have two guys who are capable of scoring 40 points each. But again, the, the Mavericks offense is becoming an issue. And that has to be a major red flag because that's supposed to be the side of the ball that's supposed to be your strength. That said, like you said, Patrick, and like we've said before, for now, we can say this for about another week. Ignore the seeding in the West because you can be in 11th or 12th one night and a couple nights later, you can be up to nine. You can go the other way too. You can be seventh one night and a couple nights later be in 10th. I mean, that's just how tight it is in the West. So there's no need to panic yet, but there are some red flags we're seeing out of the Mavericks. Getting to other teams. Again, we talked about Paul George. Uh, just unfortunate to see. You know, Paul George recently had just talked about 
and how his knees and his legs were feeling better than they felt in a long time. The game he gets injured in, he actually had an in-game, somewhat contested 362 hand dunk. <laughs> so that lets you know how, how good Paul George was feeling right before getting hurt. So it just it just you hate to see him go down right when he's finally starting to look like the Paul George we've come to see over the years, the Paul George we've seen certainly in a Clippers uniform since he's been there. Uh, given how the injury looked, a hyperextension of his right knee, I think it's fortunate that we're talking about a multi-week absence as opposed to a multi-month absence. It sounds like Paul George could be back for maybe the very, very end of the regular season. Maybe the play-in if they need it. Maybe the first round of the playoffs. But either way, it's encouraging to see that they haven't closed the book on Paul George this year yet. So in that game, he got hurt in. It was a game against the Thunder. Uh, the Thunder actually won that game. Uh, last possession of the game, Kawhi Leonard was just completely shut down and could not even get a shot off against the defense from Lugent's Dort. So I got to give Dort credit. He looked like prime Kawhi Leonard going against Kawhi on that last possession. Uh, completely shut down everything uh, Leonard was attempting to do. Every counter move Leonard made, Leonard made uh, Dort was right there with him. So it was just a beautiful, I talk all the time, I lament all the time about the lack of defense in the NBA. It was beautiful for one possession to see Dort really lock in defensively and, like I said, shut down Leonard. Uh, the Clippers and Thunders played a rematch uh, a couple days later, and the Clippers won that in convincing fashion. Uh, Kawhi Leonard was apparently upset <laughs> that he got shut down at the end of the previous game because he went 13 for 15 from, from the field in that game. That, that'll do. He shoot over 80% from the field. As a wing player, you're doing all right. So uh, the Clippers were able to exact some revenge there. Uh, the Clippers did go on to get blown out by the Pelicans at home, which was a kind of disturbing loss. And, you know, it's, it's going to be a game-to-game -game situation from the Clippers. Without Paul George, I, you know, I, I said this when Paul George was healthy. You know, people were complaining about it being a super team. I said, who, who's the third best player on this team? I, I, I don't see a third player who, who scares you anywhere on this roster. And now without Paul George, once you get past Kawhi Leonard, who can you count on on a night-to-night -night basis? There's nobody on this team who you can count on night-to-night. -night. Westbrook may have a moment here and there. Maybe Terrence Mann has a moment here and there. Maybe Eric Gordon has a moment here and there. But there's nobody on this team outside of Kawhi Leonard who scares you at all. They're a one-man band right now. And so if you're the Clippers and Again, we talked about how close the standings are in the Western Conference. The Clippers are going to have to find a way to steal some games, and they've got to find a way to do it on nights where Kawhi Leonard doesn't shoot over 80% from the field. If that's what it takes for the Clippers to win a game, then this is a team that could sink really quickly in the standings. Uh, you talked about the return of John Morant. Uh, first and foremost, I want to say it's good to see him back. Uh, there was just way too much speculation about how he was going to be gone and his, he was throwing his career away and he's going to be suspended for 50 games. Again, I think David Stern would have suspended him for 50 games, but we don't have that type of commissioner. Again, we have a type of commissioner that rescinds tactical fouls when guys should be suspended. Oh, wait, when his favorite guy should be suspended. In, anyway, back to John Morant. He's, he's back out there. Uh, he didn't face nearly the amount of punishment that people were speculating. Uh, his first game back, he came off the bench and had him had a solid performance for somebody who had been away for a couple of weeks. 
Uh, 17 points off the bench. He did have a nasty dunk over Kenyon Martin Jr. So that let you know immediately he was locked in and he was back. And he actually took a charge late in that game to help Memphis win. Again, Memphis played Houston in his first game back, but that was a close game. Again, the Rockets have played interesting ball lately. I won't say great ball, but they've, they've been playing better lately than they have for the majority of the season. So the Rockets hung tough with Memphis, but uh, John Morant with a key defensive play, taking a charge down the stretch to help him win that game. And if, if you want to endear yourself back to your team, and I never felt like John Morant had to, it really felt like his teammates went out of their way while he was gone to support him and publicly express their support for him. But if you want to endear your teammates and let you know I'm back and locked in, make a key defensive play. We know what you can do on offense. Make a key defensive play to help your team win a game, and you'll be right back in there. So uh, John Morant looks to be right at home. Uh, you know, he's still doing his dancing and, and celebrating uh, without, without, the, without the gun stuff. <laughs> he's, he's celebrating the way we're used to seeing him celebrate. So he looks to be back, locked in, and engaged. So I'm glad to see that. I uh, talked about the return of Carl Anthony Towns. I, th I thought with as long as he had been out and as long as they had gone without really updating his status, I thought maybe Carl Anthony Towns would miss the remainder of the season. He was out since November 28th uh, with his injury. But uh, he makes it back this week. And in his first couple games back, his first game back, he makes game-tying and game-winning free throws uh, to beat the Hawks. And in his second game back, he makes a game-winning three-pointer to knock, to knock off the Warriors. So two game-winning points. I don't know if you call a free throw a bucket per se, but uh, two game-winning points, we'll call it, for Carl Anthony Towns in his first two games back. Uh, not bad at all. The end of that Golden State game was a little weird. Uh, Golden State had the lead and possession late. Draymond Green turns the ball over, and that leads to a transition three from Carl Anthony Towns, a play that was set up by Kyle Anderson who's one of many Timberwolves who have stepped up uh, as Towns was hurt and as Anthony Edwards missed a few games. So uh, credit to the Timberwolves for surviving the time without Towns. Uh, Carl Anthony Towns not playing tonight because it's a back-to-back -back situation and because the NBA, and, you know, this is what happens in the NBA now. You got to get load managed. Uh, so no Towns tonight. But in Minnesota, doing a good job of hanging in there. They've been... Very much shorthanded for most of the season, but different guys have stepped up at different times. Uh, while Anthony Edwards was injured, uh, Jaden McDaniel stepped up. Uh, he had a four-game stretch where he averaged 21 and a half points a game. That's way above what he normally gives you. But again, somebody had to fill the void once Edwards went down. And Jaden McDaniels uh, did a great job of stepping in and picking up the slack. So again, it's good to be able to talk about players actually returning. Uh, and, and again, one other player who you may have heard of who returned, Patrick talked about him, LeBron James. Uh, you know, he came off the bench. He talked about the uh, relative lack of playing time. We're used to seeing LeBron James, of course, carry a heavy workload uh, night in and night out. Uh, he talked about, again, his mitigated playing time in this game. Even with reduced playing time, LeBron James had five turnovers in this game. And to me, that just spoke to rust that spoke to somebody who was trying to figure figure out how to get their flow back, get their rhythm back. And LeBron James, I, I didn't realize he had ever come off the bench in his NBA career, but apparently like 15, 16, 17 years ago, he came off the bench for a game. And I don't remember the circumstances that surrounded that, but 
Uh, when you're talking about coming off the bench for the first time, and again, well over a decade, that's an adjustment even if you hadn't missed the previous month with an injury. So you're making a couple of adjustments. You're coming back to a foreign role. I'm not too concerned about that because we know LeBron James is not going to be coming off the bench uh, very often, if ever again. So you know, I'm willing to kind of dismiss this game, but you, you do want to see what happens. We saw Austin Reeves really step up both as a scorer and a playmaker. Uh, as, as far as his scoring, he had a stretch of four games, and I'm talking about Austin Reeves. He had 53 free throw attempts in a four-game stretch, and that, that just speaks to the level of aggression Reeves played with um, lately while LeBron James was out, and also while D'Angelo Russell, who's missed the last couple of games, uh, has been out. Uh, we're also talking about Austin Reeves' assist numbers going up. He's had like at least six assists, I want to say, in four straight games, including a double-digit assist effort. So what happens when LeBron gets fully reacclimated? Can they keep Austin Reeves? And again, he, he might not get you the 35-point the performance we saw a few games ago uh, with LeBron in the lineup, but can you keep him engaged? He shouldn't completely disappear. And I've talked, I've talked about this before with Luka and, and you know players around him being able to you know, improving their playmakers. Are you going to let playmakers have a chance to make plays even when you're in the lineup? Uh, LeBron's going to have to figure out that balance. This team may not need LeBron to be the 30.8 rebound, eight assist guy. Maybe he can take that down a notch and maybe get you 23, six and six. That should be plenty on a team that features Anthony Davis uh, again, if you get D'Angelo Russell back, we know he's capable of scoring 20 points. He was one of the hottest players in the world when he first came over to the Lakers. So, you know, they've got other guys. Again, Austin Reeves proving that he can uh, provide an offensive jolt for you. So, you know, you got to let these other players continue to cook to some degree. And again, they're not going to take over the team. It's still it's still a bronze team in a lot of ways, but I. Uh, like you said, Patrick, there's going to be some times where he has to balance. He has to defer and say, you know what? I got to trust somebody else to make, make a play. I don't have to make every play, not for this group of players. Yeah, I, I just, you know, again, if the Lakers have any championship aspirations, it, they need to figure out how to, because again, I feel like they just, I'm not going to say they played more open, but obviously LeBron is a high usage player, as he should be. And whenever he was out, a lot of other guys were getting a chance to to shoot more than six shots in a game. And you, like you said, Austin Reeves stepped up. You saw Anthony Do Davis dominate. Besides, again, that eight point game, um, D'Angelo Russell was having good games when he came back, and he's hurt again. And who knows what's going on? But um, yeah, I, I just want to see this team come together again. LeBron hasn't again. He's like you talked about coming off the bench. And he hasn't done that in a long, long time. And then also, he hasn't been around, really, for this new group of players. So um, it's just going to be – hopefully they can figure it out before playoff time if they even make the playoffs. So um, final thing I want to talk about in the West is, um, you know, I agree with you with the Paul George injury. It sucks that he got hurt uh, because it did look like that team was finally starting to kind of gel and come together, and he was getting healthy – um, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm always going to give a shout out to the Kings while, while we have this platform. Um, it's just, it's just wild what, what they're doing this year. Um, and then just a shout out to Mike Brown. Um, 
I just want to talk about the playoffs real quick. Uh, it hasn't. I know the plane hasn't been around that long, but this hasn't happened before, um, where everyone in a division could make a playoff, including a play-in game. Uh, so right now in the West, the Pacific Division could do it, and that's the Kings, Suns, Clippers, Warriors, and Lakers. Uh, obviously, we are worried about the Clippers. Uh, because of the Paul George injury, but they right now have everyone in the playoffs and or play-in game. And then on the east side, uh, the Atlantic could do it, and that's Boston, Philly, New York, Brooklyn, and Toronto. Uh, Again, their whole division. Again, this has never happened uh, in the short time that the play-in has been there. Uh, It has never happened, uh, I don't think, in recent, at least 20 years I went back, um, that everyone in the division has made the playoffs, which is a lot harder to do when it was just eight teams anyway. Um, so it'll be interesting to see uh, how that plays out and if it could happen in the West and the East. Um, yeah, but again, Sacramento's been playing well. They're 7-3 in their last 10. We talked about Memphis being 9-1 and one, uh, and John Morant coming back. So again, the West um, is stacked, and the, most of the teams are, are going at least 500 out of their last 10 games. So... It is going to come down to the very last game, as I would, uh, very last game of the season, which I would love for it to do. I would love if there are like 10 different scenarios for people making it, not making it. Uh, that would be, that would be awesome for me if, if, if it came down to like win and you're in, or if you lose and then this team loses and this team wins and this team wins and you're in. Like, I just want to, I want a bunch of different scenarios, uh, for that last last week uh, before the playoffs um, is clinched. You got anything else for the West, Julius? Uh, specific to the West, um, again, you talked about the Sacramento Kings. We we do, and I, I give you credit especially uh, for continuing to give them their credit as they just continue uh, to show you that they're, they're not falling off, they're not going anywhere, uh, despite their – complete lack of experience in postseason play. And I want to say Harrison Barnes is the only guy who's played in the postseason game on that team as far as guys who are in the rotation. They look like a team that's going to be a problem in the postseason. And I've talked about Keegan Murray before, but just just to give an update on him, uh, Keegan Murray up to 184 three-pointers on the season headed into the night. The record for a rookie is 187 by Donovan Mitchell. So Keegan Murray... Three three-pointers away. So close. From tying four three-pointers away from breaking the single-season rookie record for three-pointers. So whether it's tonight or certainly by the next time we do a podcast episode, Keegan Murray is going to be your record holder for most three-pointers in a season by a rookie. Uh, Just a couple of other quick notes. Uh, This one's not necessarily in the West, but uh, Spencer Dinwiddie just wanted to give him a shout out. Uh, in the month of March, he has seven double digit assist games. Again, it, it's amazing what Spencer Dinwiddie can do when you actually let him touch the basketball. Maybe that should have happened in one of his previous teams, Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for, for again, for, for a Dallas organization that, that never helped. Luca, don't you child? It just, I'm seeing ex Mavericks looking pretty good on other teams. I, I just want to continue to say that. And, and you know, maybe Spencer Dinwiddie's not an elite point guard. He's, he's not at that level, but he's showing you he can be a playmaker. He's shown at times this year that he can be a scorer. Uh, you talk about what Michael Bridges is doing. 
and with the Nets. Uh, he had a 44-point game recently, so just he just continues to go off. He continues to show. I'll, I'll be honest. I didn't know Michael Bridges was this good of a scorer. I knew he could score. But to, to see him consistently threaten 25, 30 points on most nights, I, I didn't quite know that, that he had this level of scoring in him. And he's kind of reminding me of a, a younger Kawhi Leonard with the way he's playing basketball right now. So just good to see for him. Uh, the Nets still have some work to do to kind of fill that roster out. But you see what Bridges is doing. Uh, again, you see Dinwiddie becoming this consistent playmaker. You send Nicholas Claxton take a step forward in the middle, providing a defensive and rebounding presence for them. There, there's reason to be uh, optimistic about the Nets moving forward. They're, they're not, again, they're not going to contend for a championship or anything anytime soon. And they've actually fallen in the standings. So I don't want to act like the Nets are the, the kings of the, the East. They, the Sacramento Kings of the East, they, you know, still have some work to do, but, uh, there are some pieces there, and if they can figure out how to get more out of some of their pieces, I think specifically about somebody like Cam Thomas, if they can figure out how to kind of get the best out of him and figure out how to make him just a pure score off the bench. Uh, again, I understand that this game's not well-rounded, but you'd like to see somebody who's shown he can get you 40 points. You'd like to see him can have a consistent role on that team, at least getting 20 minutes a night and kind of feeling that six-man instant offense roll off the bench. I'd like to see him kind of feel that, you know, you've seen guys like J.R. Smith or somebody feel a similar type of role. I'd like to see Cam Thomas uh, ascend to that point. But, uh, again, some pieces in Brooklyn. Uh, they've, they've got some draft picks, obviously, to work with, so uh, we'll see what they can make happen. But they've got to be thrilled with what they're getting out of Michael Bridges, and they got to feel pretty good uh, about what they're getting from Spencer Dinwiddie in his second time around. And uh, last note, just just to throw it out there, um, Greg Popovich suffered his worst defeat as a head coach. I'm surprised it took to this point in the season for it to happen. But in a game where guys like Sandro Mamoukelishvili are getting big minutes, the Spurs get absolutely hammered by the Boston Celtics. I believe it was about a 44-point loss. And that's without Jason Tatum playing in the game. So... Uh, San Antonio continues to uh, work extra hard. I mean, if if margin of defeat was a way to ensure the number one pick, the Spurs would already have Victor Wimbanyama signed. I mean, that that's just how bad they're playing. Every night, they just they they are rotating four and five guys onto the inactive list. Zach Collins plays one game, sits another game. Trey Jones plays one game, sits one game. Uh, Devin Vassell sits, plays one game, sits one game. It, it's it's a complete mess. You know, Keldon Johnson plays a game, sits a game, and they just kind of alternate. So I guess it doesn't look too bad. But uh, the Spurs doing everything in their power to charge towards uh, that top pick. And, and speaking of charging towards draft position, it looks like that's what the Portland Trailblazers are going to do. Uh, they have shut down. It seems like everybody their last uh, couple games they played without Damian Lillard, without Anthony Simmons, uh, without. Uh, Yusuf Nurkic without Jeremy Grant. So <laughs> you expect to see a lot of shade and sharp, a lot of Nasir Little, some Cam Reddish, some Drew Eubanks. And if you're a Ryan Archie Diacono fan, now is your time to shine because that's what Portland's throwing out there these days. So uh, we, we were seeing 
a lot of teams can, in contention. You talk about a whole division being in contention in the Western Conference, uh, but for those teams not in contention, we, we are really seeing uh, the tank take a, another step forward for those teams in recent weeks. Yeah, the, the Trailblazer situation is is just I I don't I don't even know what to talk about with that because they were like we're trying we're trying oh we lost a few games even though Damian Lillard was putting up thirty five points a game let's shut it all down like it just it's, it just, it's, it's, just, over. it's over we we give we four games back of the ten of the tenth place we give we're out like I just it's just it's it's wild to see teams give up so quickly. Um, but yeah, man, and, and the Jazz are starting to lose a lot of games like we thought they would. We thought they would fall out. Yep. Um, yep. So, yeah, the West is going to be interesting. Uh, moving over to the East, we got four teams that have already clinched playoff spots, uh, Julius. Uh, is Milwaukee, Boston, Philly, and Cleveland. No surprises there, at least for me. I thought all four of them were definitely teams um, in contention. And then when the Cleveland made the Donovan Mitchell trade in the offseason, I, I mean, I was like, all right, it's a wrap. This is This is happening. Uh, for Cleveland, for sure. Uh, I liked their team before he was on the team. So when they got him, I, I really liked that team. So um, New York Knicks uh, are in the fifth seed, and, and they're three games up on the 6-7. The so they will most likely get a clinched in spot. Um, and then you have the Nets sitting at six right now, uh, but they're tied with the Heat at 40 and 35. Um Again, the Nets are losing a lot more than they're winning these days, and the Heat are the Heat, and they're kind of starting to have a nice little trend up. Um, but the Heat just don't score. They don't. They're the only team, yeah. the only team in the NBA. People, <laughs> let me say it again: not the Pistons, not the Rockets, not the, not Sp- the Spurs, not the Spurs. The Heat <laughs> are the only team that do not average more than 110 points per game. The only team that does not average more than 110 points per game. Uh, it's amazing how they're even in contention to get a playoff spot without having to play a play-in. Um, just looking at the East again quickly, um, the top four are all pretty much the, the same right now. Uh, Milwaukee 7-3 and three in their last 10. So is Boston. So are the Sixers. Unfortunately, they've lost two in a row, and it looks like they're about to lose three in a row tonight because Harden and Bede both aren't playing in Denver, so they're about to go on a three-game losing streak. Cleveland is 8-2 and two in their last 10 with a four-game win streak going on. Um, so, again, uh, Sixers might want to be careful with how they finish the season because uh, Cleveland, Cleveland's right there, right behind them uh, for that third seed, and I, I don't know if I want to be the four and have to play currently the Knicks. I don't know if I want to, if that's the matchup I want to play in the first round of the playoffs uh, would be the four or five. So uh, Philly better make sure that uh, they don't there again, they have a two game lead on Cleveland right now because Cleveland, uh, even though they're only one game back in the win column have played more games and have three more losses. So, um, but yeah, uh, in the East, what I'm watching right now um the Hawks, clearly it wasn't the coach that uh, had to make a change because they still look like the exact same Hawks, um, at least in my opinion. Uh, Trey Young is just doing whatever Trey Young wants to do. Um, I never saw an angle on this, but he threw a ball at a ref apparently, and he, and he got ejected from a game. Um, I saw the throw. The throw looked like it had some force behind it. Again, I, don't see, I didn't see where it landed, um, but um, 
that's not on Nate McMillan. That's not a coaching issue. That is a player issue. So uh, this team has not looked any differently since making this amazing, quote-unquote, coaching change. Um, So, again, just a 500-ish team, even though they haven't been able to get over 500. Um, And they're just going to kind of sneak into the playing game because the East is terrible. Um, But there is one team that has the talent to make noise if they can get into the playoffs, and that's the Chicago Bulls. Um, Their roster to start the season, you looked at it, and, and unfortunately for Alonzo Ball, Hopefully he can get his body together or do whatever's best for him because um, they're saying that he's having another knee surgery and it's the same surgery that some other guys have had that that their careers were never the same or they could never play again. So I'm hoping for the best for that kid. Um, but uh, Chicago has a good players on the roster. Zach Levine, DeMar DeRozan, Nikola Vucevic. Uh, those aren't scrubs. Those are all-star players. Um so that's a team that I would be worried about if I had to play them in any round in the playoffs. And their record against the top three right now, they actually have a winning record in all of their season series right now. So they have a winning record against the Bucks, the Celtics, and the Sixers. Um, so if I'm any of those teams in the East, that is the one team I want to avoid uh, playing in the first round. Not, not just because, again, their roster is good enough to beat them, um, you do not want to go out round one to a team that had to play in the play-in. So, um, especially if it's the Sixers, the Sixers don't need any more. Heart- Philadelphia as a city doesn't need any more heartbreak. The, <laughs> uh, three championships that they've been in this year, and they've lost all three. So, um, this is their next best shot, and and you would not want to go out round one to the Bulls. But you got to watch out for the Bulls. They're making noise right now. Um, they're seven and three in their last ten which again is right up there with the top four teams in the, in the East. Um, but again, it, it might be a little too late for that team, but um, uh, again, they have winning records against the top three seeds right now in the East. So that's something to keep your eye on. Again, you got the Raptors in front of them, the Hawks, the heat and the nets, all those teams can go either way. Um, again, we know the nets are kind of in free fall mode ever since the trade, even though there are all those guys are playing way better than expected, especially Mikael Bridges, um, you know, Julius and I always had said for years now that he's the best three and D player in the league. And now that he's had his, um, time to shine and get usage, he is showing like what made him, you know, a star at Villanova. Um, and he's just, he's just balling. So, uh, glad to see him playing well. Um, but yeah, so we'll see what happens in the East. This looks a lot more clear. I don't, I don't think the wizards or the Pacers are going to make a run to overtake anyone, for the 10th seed, but again, it also is the Raptors and Hawks, so I wouldn't be surprised if any of those guys went on a losing streak, even the Nets, if they fell out of 6th. But they have 40 wins, and the Wizards and Pacers have 33, so even if they lose their next 7, the Wizards and Pacers would have to win their next 7, so I think think the Nets are going to get a play-in game um, uh, at the minimum. So, uh, yeah, the East is pretty much set um, because again, the Wizards and Pacers are already three games back of the Bulls. And again, it's not only the Bulls having to lose three games, the Wizards and Pacers also have to win three games. So, um, we'll see though. We'll see. We'll see what happens with the East. Uh, I'm excited to see some of these top matchups because if Milwaukee and Boston play in the playoffs or even Milwaukee, Sixers, Cleveland, Boston, Cleveland, I'm, I'm excited for all those matchups at the top. 
Yeah, a lot going on in the East, a lot of moving parts. Uh, you talked about the Cavaliers with Donovan Mitchell. Uh, we, we talked about star players and, you know, maybe being a little too ball dominant at times and not allowing the other players around them to kind of shine to some degree. And not, not to say that as a complete criticism, but just to say that as, as a fact that, uh, you know, with a LeBron James or a Luka Doncic, high usage players, you kind of see other guys who need the ball in their hands uh, start to kind of suffer a little bit because they get out of rhythm, becoming deferential to the star player. Donovan Mitchell, that's the thing I got to give him credit for. When you look at the other guys on this team, Donovan Mitchell hasn't affected Darius Garland's ability to produce. He hasn't affected Evan Mobley's ability to produce. Like other guys for the Cavaliers are still getting opportunities with the ball in their hands. They're getting opportunities to make plays. And Donovan Mitchell is coming through in those big moments and closeout situations. That he seems to have found that balance that we see a lot of other high usage players struggle to find. So that that's that was the thing. When they made that trade for Donovan Mitchell, that's what I wanted to see. Can you be that guy who can share the basketball with other guys who can score? When he was in Utah, you didn't necessarily have the greatest scores around Donovan Mitchell. So it was kind of easier for him to, to dominate the ball, dominate the scoring opportunities. In Cleveland, there's been times. Obviously, he had a 71-point game this year, so there's been times where he certainly dominated the basketball and everybody took a back seat. But on a game-to-game basis, you're seeing the other supporting players being able to get their opportunities as well. And because of that, Cleveland is having their best season, obviously. I mean, if you, if you haven't seen the stat, I think everybody's seen it by now. This, you know, this is the best season the Cavaliers have had without LeBron James on the roster this millennium. <laughs> so uh, credit to Donovan Mitchell for what he's doing and finding that balance uh, to keep his teammates involved, but to also take over when uh, situations call for him too. Uh, like I said, the Knicks are still hanging in there. Uh, getting a little concerned with Jalen Brunson over the last uh, couple weeks, he's dealt with foot and hand injuries. And again, we're, we're talking about somebody who has taken on a bigger role than he's ever taken on before. And we know <laughs> Tom Thibodeau, he's, he's not going to, he's the one guy that's not going to load manage his players. So, uh, Jalen Brunson, a lot of nights is going out there playing, you know, 32, 35, 37 minutes, playing both sets of a back-to-back and playing all those heavy minutes. Uh, you wonder if it's starting to run him down a little bit. He still looks extremely effective when he's out there. So uh, it, it doesn't seem to be fatigued at all, but you, you just wonder if the extra mileage this year has anything to do uh, with the recent injuries he's suffered and the fact that he's missed a good amount of games over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Emmanuel quickly stepped up big tonight in the absence of Jalen Brunson, uh, but he's a guard and he's going against the Rockets defense. Patrick has already detailed what happens when you combine excellent offensive guards with Houston's defense. So no surprise that Emmanuel quickly goes off tonight the way he did. But uh, when you don't have Jalen Brunson and you're going against better teams that actually give an effort on defense, uh, that's when you miss Jalen Brunson uh, being the guy who kind of, brings everything together, gets players in the right spots, distributes the ball. They don't, they don't have a true distributor. Julius Randle can do it to a degree, but uh, he can be a ball stopper if he's the primary playmaker in an offense. So they need uh, Jalen Brunson, again, when they're going against better teams. 
And so we'll see going forward if Jalen Brunson can stay on the floor. Uh, you talk about the Heat somehow, some way, right? They, this is a team that we kind of waited all year to write off. and they, They've never looked like they've really hit a stride at any given point this year. You haven't seen them go on that hot streak. You see them struggling for offense on a night-in, night-out basis. And yet somehow, some way, not only, like like you said, not only are they in the play-in, but they, they've got an excellent opportunity to advance past the play-in and earn that sixth spot in the postseason. And that that's just amazing. Uh, again, when you see how the season's gone, when you've seen that they've had guys in and out of the lineup all year, uh, then that seems to be the problem of the last couple of years. Adebayo misses some games here and there. Jimmy Butler misses some time here and there. Uh, Jimmy Butler, we're used to him being one of the more consistent guys as far as playing a bunch of games. But uh, lately, that hasn't been as much the case. Uh, Kyle Lowry, the last couple of years, he's just disappeared from the team at times. Not sure what all's going on there. But uh, he's been in and out, and they don't really. It's, it's amazing to me that it, even after last year, when he missed so much playing time, uh, dealing with off-court issues, that they really still haven't found a good, good insurance policy for him. So when he's not there, they they really have an issue at times. And uh, even the acquisition of Kevin Love, he's he's been okay since going over to the Heat. But, uh, again, at this stage of his career, there's only so much uh, he can help with. He can knock down an occasional three as a stretch four, but he's, he's not giving them a whole lot more than that right now. Uh, again, looking at the rest of the standings in the East, you talk about the Chicago Bulls being dangerous. They, they've just needed a point guard. And you talk about the absence of Lonzo Ball all season. They've got the offensive pieces there. DeRozan, we know he can score. We know what he can do uh, from the mid-range and in. Zach Levine, he can get hot and knock down a bunch of three-pointers and score in bunches. Uh, Nikola Vucevic can be a scorer. So you know, they, they've got guys there who can put the ball in the basket, guys who can create their own shots for sure. But it'd be nice to have a distributing point guard who uh, can help set those guys up and give them some easy offense from time to time. Of uh, the last few games, Kobe White has stepped in and done a better job of that. Uh, the efficiency kind of comes and goes with Kobe White, but he's playing better as of late, and that uh, coincides with the Bulls as a team playing better as of late. But the Chicago Bulls, for them to be a threat, they're going to need somebody who can uh, take away some of the ball-handling responsibilities from, from Levine and DeRozan and you know let them focus more on scoring while they – the point guard focus on, on initiating offense, distributing the ball, again, helping take some of that burden away uh, from the main guys who have to score on that team. Uh, Patrick Beverly has obviously been a good influence for that team. Uh, they are playing a lot better defensively with him there. He's demonstrated on-court leadership. Uh, he had a fun moment with LeBron James in the Lakers game where he, he you know, told LeBron he was too small. We, we know that was ironic. You know, we, you know, we know he didn't mean that, but that's, the kind of dig you give a former teammate, especially a former teammate who's primarily responsible for trading you away. Uh, so he had, a, again, nice moment there. But uh, they they have done a lot better with Patrick Beverly. But Beverly, again, is not a playmaking point guard offensively. So they still need that void to be filled on a nightly basis. And that's where Kobe White is filling the gap to some degree. But again, I, I just get concerned that when it matters most, the Bulls don't have anybody in that position. And they really, really do miss Lonzo Ball. So it's unfortunate that his, his knee is just uh, kind of giving up on him. And uh, lastly, you know, you talk about the Hawks. They, they are what they are. They're 5-5 five and five in their last 10. That's representative of who they are and what they've done all season long. 
They've been a win one, lose one, win two, lose two type of team all year long. Uh, with the Trey Young incident, I actually did find an angle that showed where the ball went. Uh, referee caught the ball and just kind of went to the referee's chest. He bobbled the ball a little bit. And, you know, the referee looked like he might not have been ready to catch it. Looked like he was just finishing blowing the whistle or something or indicating a foul. So I thought that uh, incident was a bit overblown. But at the same time, uh, with Trey Young, he, you know, he's had kind of petulant moments for sure. And again, he's, he's going through coaches at a concerning rate. Uh, to only be five years into his career. So uh, those are the little things that Young has to clean up. I agree with you entirely, Patrick, as far as Young wanting to be in a situation where he can do whatever he wants, he can take whatever shot he wants, he can play defense or not play defense whenever he wants and not be held accountable for it. It seems like uh, that's what he wants. Uh, With that in mind, that makes uh, Quinn Snyder an interesting choice as a, a coach because Snyder doesn't have the reputation of being a coach that's going to go for that. So it'll be interesting to see where that dynamic goes moving forward, especially once Snyder gets an off offseason to work with these guys and really kind of install his culture and philosophy in Atlanta. But for, for this year, it seems like the Hawks are going to kind of freelance it, let Young do what he does, let DeJounte Murray do what he does and uh, just take it from there. But, but yeah, this is this is a mid team. <laughs> they are the definition of mid, and I expect them to continue to be mid as the season moves on. Moving over to the women's bracket, as promised, um, ladies. The final four is set. We got Virginia Tech against LSU, and we're gonna have South Carolina against Iowa. And a lead eight game that broke my heart because the Lady Terps came out and actually won the first quarter. And then yes, the second quarter happened, and they only scored nine <laughs> points. Um, they 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 played them tough, though. I cannot be mad at you losing by eleven to South Carolina. That's better than a lot of teams. So <laughs> absolutely, um, you know it. It's I'm just happy they even won a quarter. I you know you, you play the game and you hope, and then Maryland played them tough, but it just. It's this South Carolina team is just different. It just reminds you of all those UConn teams that had their four-year runs, and reminds you of the Tennessee teams that had them their runs with Pat Summit. And it's it's just um, this team is just is just built different. Um, so uh, my final four: if Virginia Tech wins this, uh, that side of the bracket's not good for me. I went over two over there. Because uh, I said UConn was going to go make it, so. Uh, but on the left side, I'm good. I had South Carolina playing Iowa, so uh, we got that right. So woo! At least I did something right in a bracket. Um, little mad at Utah because they could have beat LSU, uh, and then yeah. she blew two free throws. All I had to do was if you made one, you would have at least had the game tied. So Utah had a chance to win the game, or at least be in a good position to win the game. Um, their player goes up to the free throw line. They're down by one. Air balls the first free throw. <laughs> that, that one. Woo. In my mind, I said, there's no <laughs> way she makes the second one after the air ball. Um, and sure enough, air balls. I'm um, not an air ball. misses the second one. LSU wins the game, unfortunately. Uh, Utah definitely had a chance to win it, which is was my upset pick in this bracket. Uh, Again, LSU, if anyone was watching co- women's college basketball at the beginning of the season, they were also undefeated with South Carolina in the SEC. They were a good team, and then 
kind of had some injuries, kind of had some things happen, and kind of fell off. That's how they dropped to a three seed. Um, so it's no surprise that they're in the Final Four, to me at least. Um, Angel Reese probably could have helped out Maryland against South Carolina tonight, <laughs> but she decided to go to LSU for reasons unknown to me. Um, but, uh, yeah, so Utah kind of disappointed me. Uh, that was my little upset pick coming out of the bracket. Um, and they could have won and had a really good chance to win that game and didn't. And then uh, talking about the LSU Miami game, Elite Eight, it was awful. It was just an awful <laughs> game. Um, so there were no threes made until the very end of the game, essentially. Um, yep. Miami went 0 for 15. LSU went 1 for 12 uh, from three. That is a combined one of 27. So that is terrible. Um, <laughs> Miami shot 32% for the game. LSU shot 30%. Uh, this game was just a bad, bad. I don't want to say it was great defense on both sides. I mean, there was good defense, but there was also just bad offense. Um, outside of the paint, uh, I saw this stat, Julius, and I just want to give it to you because I know you love stats. Um, yes. The teams combined a six for 62 outside of the paint. That is a 9.7 <laughs> field goal percentage outside the paint. So Beautiful. that game was awful to watch. Um, you know, I, It was just a bad game. Uh, LSU won, though. Um, and then I want to get to, and I saved this one for, for last um, is the Iowa-Louisville game. Caitlin mother effing Clark. Um, only person in NCAA history. And the reason I said person is because man or woman, the only person in NCAA tournament history with a 40-point triple-double in any tournament game. Caitlin Clark. Against Louisville, Elite Eight, Final Four on the line. Louisville starts the game off on a 10-0 run. 8-0 run, I'm sorry. Caitlin Clark, 41 points, 10 rebounds, 12 assists. And she could have had more than 12 assists if half of her passes weren't hitting her teammates in the hands and they're just kicking them out of bounds. (laughs) Let me repeat this. She is the only person in NCAA history NCAA has been around for a long time, people. Long time. Pistol Pete played in the NCAA. Only person. 40-point triple-double in a tournament game. Caitlin Clark is that person. She is that woman. If you've never watched her in a game, you need to turn the TV on and watch the women's tournament because these games are fire. If you watched any of these games you would not have been disappointed unless you watched Miami LSU. And I'm sorry. Um, but other than that, these games <laughs> were, were incredible. And, and I didn't even shout out Ohio state yet. I know they lost to Virginia tech, but they beat UConn. It's the first time UConn hasn't made the elite eight in like 20 years under Gino Ariema or something like that. So um, just again, just incredible, incredible tournament out of the women's side. Um, and I just want to give one final shout out and I'll let Julius talk about some of the things that he saw. just want to give a shout out to Kim Mulkey. For those of you who don't know, she is the coach at LSU now. Uh, 
if you do follow college basketball, you know that she is the one that led uh, that Baylor program to three national titles. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And she's from Louisiana, so that's why she went back home and, and, and she wanted to coach at LSU. Um, and the fact that it's year two and they're in the final four uh, is just incredible. Uh, LSU was not a good women's basketball program by any means. Um, and she, the fact that they're in the final four is just incredible. So I just want to give a shout out to her. Um, you know, a lot of people probably don't know too many coaches from the women's besides Gina Ariema, but, um, <laughs> so I just want to give a shout out to Kim Mulkey. Uh, just an incredible job. Everyone was shocked when she left Baylor. Um, uh, I think they were more shocked when she went to LSU and now she has a chance. She's two games away from getting another championship with a different program. And even if she doesn't, the fact that LSU is in the final four, um, just incredible, just incredible. Yeah, that that's that's pretty comprehensive analysis on the women's side. So I, I don't want to just be redundant and just repeat everything you said. So I'll just kind of co- talk about a couple of things that uh, that I saw in addition to everything you said, which I agree with everything you said. Uh, one, my, my women's bracket looks a lot better than my men's bracket, thank goodness. I had South Carolina, Iowa and LSU all in the final four. So I was able to get three out of four. I also had UConn as well. Uh, but like you said, give credit to Ohio State for really just making UConn suffocate. I mean, the, the press defense they played on UConn, I, I thought UConn would be able to handle it. They could not. Ohio State really pressured the ball. UConn had no response for it. Uh, it's a moment like that where you certainly miss a dynamic presence like Paige Beckers who can handle the ball uh, to help break that press, but uh, definitely credit to Ohio State for uh, figuring out what to do to beat UConn and then executing the plan perfectly. Uh, one thing I did want to touch on with the uh, LSU-Iowa game and yeah, that, was, that was a rough ending with the missed free throws from Utah, like you said, when they had an opportunity to, to, to make it happen at the end of that game, but I, I just wanted to talk about this. I've already talked about how I want the foul limit raised in basketball for college basketball on the men's and women's side. But for, for those who didn't see it, Lyle J. Johnson of LSU was called for an offensive foul in this game. It was her fourth foul of the game. A couple minutes later, the referees reviewed a different play that had already happened and ruled that Lyle J. Johnson committed a foul earlier in the game and gave her a fifth foul. I have never in my life seen somebody retroactively foul out. Like, I've never seen somebody commit their fifth foul before their fourth foul. And we all love instant replay. Instant replay is is getting a lot of stuff right. Uh... Sometimes it gets overused when you see these super, super, super zoom-in, slow-mo replays of whose fingernail did the ball go off when it went out of bounds. You know, we don't necessarily like seeing two and three minutes spent on reviewing that kind of stuff. But for the most part, we enjoy instant replay. Replay should not be used to determine a common foul that happened possessions earlier. I, I just don't understand how you can have a player on the court who believes they're playing with three fouls commit a fourth foul, and then be told, oh, by the way, we went back and counted an extra foul, so now you're out of the game. 
I did not like at all how they had a foul Johnson out of that game. I thought the referee should have handled that better. Obviously, you're going to play differently. I don't think Flower J. Johnson would have made the move she made to get that fourth foul if she would have known that she was going to retroactively get another foul added to her total. So that, that, that's one thing I do have to just rant about because that, that's, that's just some poor officiating in my mind to go back and give somebody an extra foul uh, with no heads up or, or no warning or anything. That, that, to me, is ridiculous that you can foul out on a foul that happened a couple minutes ago. The reverse Luka Doncic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, uh, I'm, I'm gonna do, you had the chance to enforce that foul and you didn't. <laughs> and then I just give it to him. No, no. no. So for that alone, I'm, I'm glad that LSU won that game. Cause I would have hated to see her, her season end. Uh, she, she's young, so she's still got plenty of time at LSU or, or in college basketball. But I would have hated to see a season end on fouling out. Because the refs told you you had three fouls, and all of a sudden, oh, by the way, we just threw an extra foul in there after you committed this one just now. Uh, going to the Miami game, uh, you, talk, you talked about how it was ugly. It absolutely was. Uh, that's the least efficient I've seen Angel Reese offensively. I think she missed like her first nine shots to start that game out. But the thing I have to give her credit for is, you know, we talk about with great players, it's one thing to be able to go out there and, and score 20, 25, 30 points. What can you do if you're not scoring? And Angel V still dominated the glass. She still was a de defensive presence. And what I liked about her in this game is she wasn't just a defensive presence at the rim. She actually went out on the perimeter. Angel Reese was out there guarding guys, uh, guarding women on the wings and really helping you know, we talked about how ugly this game was. A lot of it was re-stepping outside sometimes and forcing uh, perimeter players to give the ball up or to take really, really difficult shots or to just turn the ball over. So uh, just a beautiful game all around outside of the shooting for um, Angel Reese. And I just appreciate that, you know, a star player can say, okay, I'm, I don't have my scoring game. How else can I impact this game? So uh, that was a job well done. Again, this LSU team follows Angel Reese's lead. Uh, so they are the biggest characters. They're the biggest personalities of the tournament by far. When I say biggest personalities, I mean men's or women's. This, this is the team with the most character. This is the team that has the most fun uh, in the locker room in pregame and postgame. Uh, again, Flaugia J. Johnson, you see her freestyling in, in the postgame interviews. Uh, it's, it's just a team with a lot of personalities. So uh, they're an easy team to root for. They are confident. You could even call them cocky, but they are an easy team to root for. Um, and even when they're playing ugly basketball, because of that personality to play with and the intensity to play with, uh, they are a fun team to watch. Uh, you talk about South Carolina versus Maryland tonight. Uh, again, I think everybody had South Carolina uh, coming out of their region, so no surprise here. But you know what? If, if you're Maryland... Yeah, you can hang your head high on this one because, again, South Carolina is just, just a different team. Uh, so to contend with them, even for a quarter, to beat them in a quarter, hey, that, that, that's an accomplishment. Uh, I was watching that game, and you know they even said it at halftime. South Carolina is at a level right now where I think they were up maybe eight at halftime. And they're the only team, again, on the men's or women's side, where they can be up eight at halftime against the number two seed, not against some scrub team. And you look at them and say, boy, what's wrong with South Carolina tonight? But uh, they, they came out and 
were able to pull away in the second half. Um, Abby, like I'm, I'm blanking on her last name, unfortunately, but uh, she kept Maryland in the game early with some shots. Unfortunately, she ended up fouling out of this game. That, that hurt because, I mean, to have anybody get hot against uh, South Carolina is, is a big deal because they, they, they will pressure you all over the court defensively. So to lose somebody who came out and was hitting shots from the perimeter, that was a big loss for Maryland. And uh, they were just were not going to be able to recover from that. But, again, all in all, good effort. They, they made uh, South Carolina work, the Terrapins did, so I got to give them credit there. And, uh, yeah, you, you, you talked about Caitlin Clark. Uh, again, again, I talked about how Marquise Noel became the, super, the superstar of the men's tournament, even though Kansas State's out. Uh, he's, he's the guy everybody's going to remember on – the men's side and on the women's side, no matter what happens with Iowa, Caitlin Clark is absolutely going to be uh, the woman remembered from this tournament. You talked about a 40 point triple double. Now I, I do have to say this and I, I don't want to be the guy who reigns on a parade or anything, but I do have to say this with a minute left, Caitlin Clark had 39 points and nine rebounds. You think she didn't know that she had 39 points and nine rebounds. This is a game that Iowa won by 14. They were down early, but they pulled away easily late. Caitlin Clark stayed in that game to get that 10th rebound, and she was chasing it all over the place. She was leaving her woman uncontested. She went and she caught a missed shot that went over the backboard and was blown dead to try to get a 10th rebound. She was going for it. And she scored her 40th point from the free throw line with 23 seconds left. So <laughs> non-consequential scoring, it was stat padding. Let's call it what it is. But I'm glad it happened because it just goes to show you don't care about stat padding as long as it's not somebody you hate. <laughs> so it, it, everybody, and I, I've said this, I don't mind stat padding. Everybody who's good enough to stat pad does it. The reason Caitlin Clark's the only player to have a 40-point triple-double is because she's the only one who was in position to do it. And she's the only one in position to do it because she's that darn good. So I'm not mad at it. If she finished the night with 39 points, 9 rebounds, and 12 assists, that still would have been one of the greatest tournament performances we've ever seen. But yeah, go for the 40-point triple-double. And I'm glad that she doesn't have to deal with what certain other players have to deal with when they pad their stats in a similar fashion. So I just want to throw that out there. That said, that 40 points included eight three-pointers, so the majority of her scoring actually came from beyond the arc. And it, it, it just... It's it, it's a it's a tough assignment. It's a it's a tough assignment. You're not used to having to step out several feet beyond the arc to defend a woman. That that that's just the reality. And so, Louisville, there were times where they thought they were in position defensively, and she just shot right over the top of the defense. Now there were other times where Louisville just kind of lost track of her, and and that's just unacceptable. You 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 can't let Caitlin Clark get clean looks from the corner or something like that. And she got some of those as well. But uh, Clark, if you if you watch this game, she pretty much scored or assisted pretty much every bucket <laughs> for as long as this game was competitive, it seemed like. I, I can't think of too many plays where another Iowa player scored on their own. And we've talked uh, at times about, uh, again, how star players have to be able to integrate their teammates. In the case of Cl Caitlin Clark, she is Iowa. She is Iowa. They, they, they don't do anything without her. So... Yes, it's necessary for her to get 40 points and 10 assists. And it's probably 
you hate to say this because, again, that's literally a once-in-a-lifetime type performance, but that's the kind of performance it's probably going to take in order to beat South Carolina in the next round. But, again, this is the matchup I wanted to see, best player against best team. So I'm, I'm excited to see what Caitlin Clark can do uh, against South Carolina's defense and to see, you know, can she keep that game competitive? And if it's close late, again, there's no, there's no score quite like Caitlin Clark, and that, that's no disrespect to Maddie Segrist, who actually led the nation in scoring and is actually leaving early to go to the WNBA, something you don't see very often. But um, Caitlin Clark, even though she wasn't the leading scorer this year, she's the woman who scares you the most in women's basketball. So uh, excellent job by her in this game. Uh, then lastly, shout out Virginia Tech. Uh, you know, they keep kind of waiting for Virginia Tech to go away because they've, they've never been in this position before. They won the ACC tournament. They had never done that before. They they were the best team in the ACC all year long. They have never been that before, never really been close to that before. You're, you're continuing to kind of just wait for them to fold and go away. They will not go. <laughs> they will not go. So the same Ohio State team that was able to knock off UConn, the same Ohio State team that was able to disrupt UConn and cause them to completely lose their poise, Ohio State couldn't do that. Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech was able to handle that pressure just fine and score effectively against it. Uh, This was a close game for the majority. Virginia Tech was able to pull away late, so it was an excellent game. Um, But just, again, give give Virginia Tech credit. They just continue to win games. They continue to find ways to advance. Uh, Georgia Amore is is doing her thing, and she's somebody who has kind of put her name on the map. Uh, somebody who, to the best of my knowledge, wasn't being talked about a whole lot coming into the season. Now she's kind of getting a little shine, so good on her. And it's, it's going to be an interesting Final Four. Again, we're down to South Carolina and Iowa on the, on the left side of the bracket. And we're down to LSU, Virginia Tech on the right side. We have a potential for a South Carolina-LSU rematch in the national championship. But again... You cannot overlook Virginia Tech anymore. And and I'll admit at times I've overlooked them and I shouldn't have. So I'm not ready to say that it's definite South Carolina versus LSU in the championship. But I do think that if you're a fan of women's basketball, you kind of do want to see that rematch. Uh, last time they faced each other, I think they were both around 23, 24 and 0 each. And it was a pretty good game. Uh, LSU again with Andrew Reese in the middle. Uh, with Alexis Morris at the, at the point, uh, she's she's been great closing games out. It would be a nice potential national championship. That's that's the prediction I would make. South Carolina LSU, but again, Iowa should not be overlooked with Caitlin Clark and Virginia Tech having an historic season. Certainly for their program, should not be overlooked either. But a South Carolina LSU matchup would be fun. And you know, I've said it's the beginning of the tournament, and I think most of us listening agree that South Carolina is the team to beat until we see somebody beat them. Yeah, I don't need to see LSU-South Carolina again because when they did play, and it's LSU's only loss on the season, um, at the time, at the time it was their only loss on the season, sorry. Um, yeah. It was a blowout. <laughs> South Carolina started off on like a 22-2 to run um, and never looked back. They, they won the game 88-64. to It was... I remember it was uh it was on like I think right before the Super Bowl if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, yes, it was. And that and, that, and I was all hyped to watch it, and then I was like, God damn! <laughs> like, 
<laughs> South Carolina did not come to play. They wanted to. They wanted to stamp that. They wanted to show who the best team in the SEC was and the country was. Um, so I don't need to see that again. But I would not be mad to see it again. Um, honestly, uh, unfortunately for Iowa and Caitlin Clark, I think their dream season ends. Um, I think Caitlin Clark will get her points. I think she'll get you know twenty, twenty-two points, twenty-four points. I think it's going to be very inefficient, though, uh, just because of South Carolina's defense. I, Louisville had no one that could match up with Kalen Clark. South Carolina does, um, and it's and and I just think that again, I think she'll get her hers, but I just don't think I, it's going to be very inefficient if she does get twenty points. And, and I just don't think the rest of that t- Iowa team is going to be able to get involved. But then again, this is why you play the games, right? On paper, South Carolina's undefeated; they're the best team. Yeah, yeah, but look, Maryland, Maryland came out and won and won a quarter. And if it wasn't for a really bad second quarter, who knows what could have happened? Um, again, a really bad second quarter because of South Carolina. Um, but uh, I, I think South Carolina, now that they're so close uh, and they can smell the championship, I think they're going to try and seal the deal, especially since they didn't get to do it during the COVID year uh, when they were the best team that year as well. So I feel like they think they should have two or three championships right now. And they only have one, so um, I definitely see them handling business and, and and winning and winning the championship. I'd be shocked if they don't at least make it to the championship game. And I definitely hear you. And yes, South Carolina sent LSU a major message uh, when they played before. Uh, two things: one, I would like to see that rematch at a neutral site, and two. LSU, I talked about just their personality and overall demeanor. I just think that now a lot of teams, you beat them down like that and you would mentally have them down for the rest of the year. This is just me. I'm not in LSU's locker room, obviously, but I just think if there's any team that's built to take that loss the right way, and what I mean by that is instead of coming out and being discouraged and feeling like they can't win, they take it on the chin and say, okay, okay, we got something for them next time. I just think LSU has the ability to bounce back and be better than what they show. Now, could the same thing happen again? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, South Carolina is that good. <laughs> they, they, they could go play LSU again and be up 20 at the end of the first quarter again. They, they, they could do that. But uh, it, it's something that I am intrigued by. But I will say this. If it's South Carolina-Virginia Tech, hey, I'm, I'm not going to be mad at that matchup either. Um. South Carolina, teams have hung in with South Carolina, not necessarily for four quarters, but they've hung in for some time with South Carolina in a couple of these games. So South Carolina, you you feel like a team can make it a game, and if somebody can just hang in and just withstand the run that South Carolina eventually is going to make at some point in the game, you know, it it could be very intriguing to, to, to see. So I want to see if somebody can challenge South Carolina deep into a game. I think LSU has the pieces to contend, not necessarily beat South Carolina, but contend. So it, it, it'll be interesting. But out of these teams, again, every one of these teams deserves their respect. Iowa, again, just completely carried by Caitlin Clark. And, and then they're all right with it. <laughs> they are all right with it. They, they don't mind uh, not, not having the ball in their hands and just, again, letting – Caitlin Clark work and we, we talk about her scoring and rightfully so, but I was also impressed by her vision. She had some passes through some tight windows in that game. And like you said, Patrick, it's, it's in some cases, some of the passes she made was almost 
apparently almost too good because <laughs> their teammates did have trouble holding on to some of them. There were a couple of passes in transition uh, that she made to set up potential layups that were fumbled out of bounds. So, uh, you, you know, watch the passing of Caitlin Clark as well. She's not just a one-dimensional scorer. She, she can truly, truly run an offense. And uh, again, Virginia Tech, they, they've just done it all year long. They've been as consistent as you can be outside of outside of being South Carolina. Uh, they've been as consistent as you can be all year. So, uh, again, four teams in there that deserve respect. And just real quick, Abby Myers was the was the Maryland player. I was, I was blanking on the last name, but I want to make sure to give her proper respect. It was Abby Myers who was making shots early to keep Maryland in the game or keep Maryland ahead at one point. Uh, against South Carolina tonight, and again, unfortunately, she fouled out, and you just you just don't have a margin of error uh, against South Carolina to lose uh, one of your hotter players to fouling out. And again, raise the foul limit to six fouls, so that way you don't even have to worry about fouling out with a with a tic tac fifth foul or anything like that. So raise the foul limit. Let's go. Okay, NCAA, you heard, you heard it. Men and women, raise 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 the foul limit. Um, yeah, Caitlin Clark, I think, I believe, let me throw out a Sports Center trivia fact, uh, is the first player to have 900 points and 300 assists on the season or something like that. So, yeah, she definitely is not just a scoring threat. She has an all-around game. Um, and then, I mean, out of Virginia Tech and LSU, I definitely want to see LSU South Carolina again, I think, um, just being a conference game, like it'd be a conference championship. Um, you know, they don't like each other. I think that would be a very intriguing matchup to watch. And not, not to say that Virginia Tech and South Carolina wouldn't be a good game as well. I think it would be, but I, I think South Carolina LSU would be my favorite championship game out of the four teams remaining for sure. A couple of quick notes around sports and as we get ready to wrap this up, uh, one, the WBC was a complete success out, you know, outside of, unfortunately, a couple of injuries. Uh, national cha- uh, the World Championship between the United States and Japan uh, ends up in a victory for Japan. Uh, we saw basically another uh, coronation for Shohei Otani, who dominated as a starting pitcher. Dominated as a hitter, I believe his average for the entire WBC was above 450. <laughs> and uh, then dominated as a closer <laughs> against the United States. So just showing off his complete and unique versatility. Uh, struck out Mike Trout, uh, three string and miss, uh, swing and miss strikes. Uh, there were some balls in there, but three string and, uh, swing and miss strikes to, to close it out. Uh, just, just a unique player in Shohei Otani. A great moment for Japan. A great moment for baseball in general. So you love to see that. Uh, also want to quickly shout out Foster Moreau, former Raider. Uh, he was recently diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. So he's most likely going to be out this season. Uh, fortunately, the NFL has these tests in place where they find stuff like this. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, he was feeling fine going into a medical exam with the Saints. And they found this diagnosis. They, they were able to detect it early. I uh, should be able to be treated and be fine. Again, probably out for this season, but a good chance he can be back next year. So uh, get better soon. We look forward to seeing you back there. Uh, similar situation last year with John Mechie III. He was diagnosed with a treatable form of leukemia uh, sometime around this time or a little later than this time last year. And uh, it sounds like he's on the road back to being in the NFL this year or, or making his debut in the NFL this year. So again, these. You hate to see these cancer diagnoses, but 
At the same time, they're beatable, especially when they're detected early. So looking forward to seeing John Mechie III potentially return to the Texans this year and look forward to see Foster Moreau continue his career next year. Uh, lastly, just real quick, David Benavides Jr. Uh, is able to knock off Caleb Plant and hang on to his championship. A very good fight, a fight that started off pretty even early. You could even say Plant might have had a slight lead early as the fight went on. Uh, Benavides did a great job of just separating himself, landing one shot after the next. There were plenty of times where I thought Benavides was going to put Plant down, and I had to give Plant credit for toughness. He, he probably took about three more rounds of punishment than he should have, but at the same time, he never even went down in this match. Uh, he got beat up pretty good, but he hung in there. He kept trying to fight back. Uh, he was active enough, you know, to avoid, you know, the referee having to step in and stop the fight. Uh, the referee was a little uh, over-involved in the fight at times, a little too quick to to break up uh, certain certain situations in that fight, uh, calling uh, low blows that weren't there necessarily. Uh, as far as warnings, I don't think anybody lost a point from it, but just uh, too many warnings, too many. It's too much overall interaction to a degree, and it was Kenny Bayless refereeing that game. Normally a pretty good referee. Wasn't his best performance, but he, was, he wasn't terrible, but just got a little over-involved at times. But a good win for, good solid win for Benavides. No controversy there. Yeah, if y'all didn't catch the WBC, the World Baseball Classic, like I told y'all to, you missed out on a great championship game. As I was talking to Julius about this, the WBC felt, for me, like the players cared more about this than they do the World Series. And again, I know people call me crazy and all these other things, but if you just looked at the players and the vibe around the teams and, again, Otani coming in to close out against Mike Trout and the stadium was sold out and how much it meant to the players and the emotion and the passion and the fun that they were playing with, you don't see that on in MLB games. And I'm not even going to talk about regular season right now. I'm going to talk about playoff yeah, you see some emotion and some here and there, but I felt like you could just tell what these games meant to these players. Um, even the ones who got injured, they're they're like, sorry that I'm going to miss the regular season. <laughs> this was more important than the regular season. So, uh, again, I just hope that teams and, and Major League Baseball don't come out and start banning people from playing in this. Um if you want new viewers and, and more excitement around the game of baseball, this is the way to do it. Uh, this this World Baseball Classic was just insane. Um, Japan went undefeated, and there were some very close games. They they had to do a walk-off to just get into the championship game. Um, America, same way, USA. Trey Turner hit a grand slam to get them to be able to even make it to the quarterfinals or the semifinals, and then... Um, Trey Turner just had a State. yeah. Trey Turner just had a huge World Baseball Classic, uh, big clutch hits all around. Um, again, the vibe and 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 the and the emotion and 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 everything that this World Baseball Classic brought. This is what you want to see as a baseball fan. This is everything you hope for. And again, it doesn't it does not just USA and Japan. You know, you had uh, Randy Azarena in Mexico. Um, you had you had the Czech Republic randomly in this World Baseball Classic, um, and again, it's just it's just awesome to see again just the passion that these guys were playing with, and it made me it made me excited to watch 
the baseball games, and and again, it was they were selling out stadiums. It was just a it was just an awesome event for baseball, I believe. Um, no and, doubt. And I hope and I hope again the next time it, it comes, you know, I, hopefully if it's close close closer by, I can catch catch a game at a stadium. But um, this was definitely definitely an awesome event for baseball. All right. With all that being said, uh, we're going to wrap the show up. So we appreciate y'all listening to us as always. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, that handle is at Two Guys Four Balls Podcast. Um, you know, listen to us on your favorite streaming platforms. Uh, we appreciate y'all listening to us. We'll be off next week, but we'll be back April 10th and give you everything that's happening in the sports world. Uh, We'll go over the championship and Final Fours, and we'll go over playoff scenarios and everything happening in the sports world. Thank you for listening to the Two Guys, Four Balls podcast.